two weeks ago, we took you deeper down the rabbit hole of crop circles. Many thought the story of crop circles was mystery solved, but in reality, it's only become more and more confounding as time has gone on. Tonight, as we wrap up our three-part series on them, we're going to escort you through the remaining oddities associated with this phenomenon. We'll take a look at the scientific analyses that have happened over the years and do a deeper exploration of the unusual experiences that not only researchers, but hoaxers or crop circle artists have had along the way as well. And after that, we'll get to our conclusions, theories, and closing observations. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. A researcher is more than an investigator, and a crop circle maker is more than an artist. They are counterparts in an intuitive exchange, and the interaction between them is where truth lies. Colin Andrews, from the Kindle edition of the book he co-authored with his wife Cynthia, On the Edge of Reality. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on crop circles. That we are, and we've got quite a bit to talk about tonight, but before we do, we wanted to mention our good friend Stan Gordon, who joined us for episodes 184 and 185 mm -hmm. of our show back in August of last year, uh, 184 being about the Kecksburg incident, and 185 being more focused on the multitude of strange stories Stan has collected and cataloged throughout the years in Pennsylvania. Thanks to COVID, he's been unable to make his regular appearances around the country, so we're encouraging folks to find many of his amazing books, which we have links to in the show notes for this episode. Stan has some amazing news stories to share, so we're hoping to have him back on the show here in the not-too-distant future. Oh, and uh, one other thing, my stalwart friend. <laughs> yes? While it's true I did not do it myself, we finally have that full D.B. Cooper suspect sheet <laughs> that I talked so much smack about. <laughs> That's been up on the website for quite a while. And guess what? I, I let you off the hook a long time ago for that. But how in the world did that one get done, pray tell? Well, fortunately, good friend of the show and talented freelance graphic designer and artist Megan Lagerberg volunteered oh, to yes. work that up for us. And it came out great. Megan mm -hmm. actually has a webpage at behance.net slash Megan Lagerberg, L-A-G-E-R-B-E-R-G, design, where you can see her work or hire her perhaps. But if you want to see a nice graphic showing all the suspects we talked about in our D.B. Cooper series that she made, head to the page for part three of that series, and you'll see it there if you scroll down. It's pretty amazing to look at. Yes, thank you so much, Megan. It just reminded me of uh, <laughs> that religious art uh, from the Middle Ages with the Tree of Life where there's yes. little heads. The Tree uh, of yes, Stevie Cooper suspects, yes. Yes, exactly, in a, in a religious uh, icon setting. But anyway, yes, thank you so much, Megan. Uh, it turned out really nice, and Scott was never going to do that. I mean, I mean, I might have eventually. Yeah, okay, let's dig into part three of Crop Circles. Well, Scott, before we get into talking about our next section here, here's something that I came across. I laugh at this, but we often tell our listeners that a, a juicy gem of info will come after we've finished recording. Yes. For that part <laughs> or the whole series. Months later, like, oh, gosh, you know what? We should have probably talked about that. That's pretty interesting here. But we speculated, or I wondered and speculated in part two about how Pat Delgado, at this point, having studied tons of crop circles, 
how he got snookered into saying one was real when it wasn't. And my point in part two was, well, look, it depends on what part of the crop circle they show you. That can be faked. You can be rooked in the same way that uh, Spiros rooked the Kodak guy into the believing that that splice of film was not there, remember? Yeah. Uh, in the alien autopsy film? Yeah. With a little bit of a sleight of hand trickery, he just spread the film out, put his thumb and forefinger on the film and got to the bump, which was the hot glue splice in the film, which would have announced where the, the new footage was mixed with the old footage that he wanted him to see. So with just a little bit of sleight of hand, he was able to fool an expert. And then I wondered like, well, was Pat Delgado really fooled or did he just make a mistake? And he looked at one section, it's like, well, this seems pretty authentic. And maybe his words were taken out of context. Well, I took another look at a website that you actually came up with, Scott, and it's called An Analysis of the Hoax Theory Using Dates of the Formations by J. Marshall Dudley. And actually it's from the uh, the website Exacon, E-X-E-C-O-N-N, .com, and we'll certainly have that link. Uh, we already do have that link, so go to the webpage if you want to see it. Well, there was more of an explanation of the the ruse, perhaps, that was played on Pat Delgado. And this is explained by J. Marshall Dudley, and I believe you have some other information we can talk about after this. This is how this passage goes within this article. What it's doing, basically, is saying, let's take the dates of all the known hoaxes that people have claimed or laid claim to, match those days up, with the dates that supposedly authentic circles were discovered because people mark when these things pop up. It's only within a day or two or the next day usually because people are watching this stuff, usually from the air, and see when Doug and Dave would have had the chance to do this and when fake formations were actually found. So this is the passage from the website here. Doug and Dave. Last year, two men, commonly referred to now as Doug and Dave, were filmed inside a circle with Pat Delgado. Pat pronounced the circle genuine, and Doug and Dave then claimed they had made the circle. That a claimed hoax is accepted as such without any supporting evidence is itself disturbing. But the entire setup, coordinated by the Today newspaper, stinks of sensationalism. By the way, this is J. Marshall Dudley's words, not ours, but uh, kind of makes sense to me here. Speaking with several people in England, I am led to believe it is fairly widely believed that the circle that Pat was quote-unquote trapped with was indeed genuine. When one compares pictures of this circle with the one created the following day within the view of television cameras, one is struck by the differences in appearance. It is interesting that they can supposedly make a quite impressive circle in total darkness, but only able to create a messy approximation during the day. But of course, this does not yield any good statistical evidence, so let us proceed. So the article then goes on to compare the list of known fakes with the list of unknowns, let's say, which are considered genuine. And what's interesting, of course, this goes back to the argument we were talking about, is that Doug and Dave, as claimed, I believe, by Doug's wife, said, that, well, they only went out on Fridays. And to have done that, then you would expect the circles to be discovered on Saturdays and Sundays or even Sundays and Mondays, because if other people are hoaxing these, you gotta figure, they have day jobs, they must have something to do. If you're a student or you're a college kid doing a prank, you still gotta go to class during the week, unless it's in the summer and you have time off. All these things considered, it doesn't match up. That's all we'll say. So take a look at that article if you're curious about how the hoaxes line up with the authentic ones. But I just found that to be interesting and that that may be how Pat Delgado got 
Rooked in that he was taken to one that was believed to be authentic, made his comments there. Then the next day, Doug and Dave make a fake one in front of the cameras and the two events are combined. Yeah, that, I mean, that could be the case. I will say in Pat's book, which I had to special order, this was hard to find, Pat Delgado's book, Crop Circle's Conclusive Evidence, question mark, from Bloomsbury mm-hmm. Press. This one came out in 92. Now, he says that he was testing the one that he was tricked with. After casually walking through the formation without carrying out the more thorough checks we normally do on these occasions, this is on page 124 of the book I just mentioned, I said it appeared to be well-formed and was quite a work of art, and at that stage, I said I thought it was genuine. Then I decided to take some photographs because the sun was dropping towards the horizon and it was already being obscured by thick haze. After taking the photos, I decided to carry out some checks for electromagnetic noises in the formation by using the tape recorder's earth probes. These are pushed into the ground and connected to the input socket of the tape recorder, which in crop circles considered to be genuine would normally gain some response. It was then I was unable to pick up any distinctive noises at all that I became perturbed about the situation. By this time, the reporter had long gone, and there seemed little point in prolonging my visit, so I left the site. There's mm. some more stuff in there that we could read at a different time. Mm-hmm. He at least thought that the one that he did, did initially declare, after he said, no, I think this one's real, later, after the reporters left and he was doing additional tests, he changed his mind, and that's before he you know, was able to determine that mm-hmm. he had been tricked. So that's how I'm believing the chain of events there. But he doesn't say anything about an additional circle but this analysis from the XCON site, I think that's um, later than this book. The yeah. book was 92. This yeah. is 2004 or something like that. Ah, uh, right, right. I think. Right. But anyway. It is interesting because, of course, you can say the crappies, <laughs> the people who are fascinated and compelled by crop circles and the seriologists, the researchers who take it very seriously in their study, of course, they're going to believe some conspiracy was laid down. But we go back to this argument here, like with the PGF, look at the source. Well, the source here is today newspaper, pretty sensationalistic tabloid type journalism. They're a new paper starting out. They want to grab some headlines and bam, we just fool this guy and they can splash that on the front page, sell some papers. The PGF for our listeners who aren't familiar with our back catalog is the Patterson-Gimlin film, the most famous Bigfoot movie of all time. Uh, which right. we did an extensive series on. So when we say PGF, that's what we're referring to. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, my point here is that that argument works both ways, to my logic. Yeah. Well, there's another source where Pat is actually on camera, and I saw him, and I took notes from this documentary provided to us by our good friend Gletters, who has his own anomaly.co.uk podcast. But he found a copy of this old documentary called Crop Circle Communique 2 Revelations. But this is interesting in that there's a lot of people on camera that we've been talking about that you don't see anywhere else or we haven't come across it anywhere else. This is a bit of a find because I believe there is no DVD of this documentary, only VHS. And I saw a copy of it on eBay. So it's available, at least that one copy is, and uh, you're going to have to get your old VCR out to play it. Well, uh, we had a digital copy that was, I think, shot off the TV. So this is as it airs because it has really delightful old 90s British television commercials, adverts, as they say over there, that went along with this documentary. So I believe it was probably just filmed off the screen. Well, this documentary, Crop Circle Communique 2 Revelations, I I don't think a lot of people are going to see this. So I don't mind uh, relaying some passages here from some of the hoaxers. And I thought that this was valuable in watching 
because we really haven't heard from people who have claimed to be hoaxers. And, and what's their mindset? I mean, I know we talked about that in the final part of part two, but that's from an academic viewpoint here with the Smithsonian MAG article, right? We talked about what's the motivation? Where's their place in folklore? How do they two work together in a symbiosis they may not even be aware of? Well, that's from a folklorist's academic point of view. Let's hear from the hoaxers themselves and some other uh, notable people like Pat Delgado. Well, again, this came out, uh, I believe, in 1994, this documentary, and it was produced by John McNish and Circle Vision. And what's also interesting about this perspective is I, I think John McNish is one of the people I maybe read a blurb about who believes it may be this very strange, weird natural phenomenon than, rather than some intelligence making this that's his angle here. But I got to say, it's a little, uh, the, the tone here of this documentary is a little bit debunky in that it, it does look at the viewpoint of the hoaxers for explaining a lot of this. And it, it does, uh, to me, favor that viewpoint. So just another note, if you do go looking for this, there may be a copy on, on DVD, which may be volume one. This is very murky. The DVD, though, sounds like it's from 2004. Like I said, I think this is from 1994. So it could be a later edition or an updated edition here. Crop Circle Communique under that banner and Circle Vision and John McNish, who also, I believe, has uh, done a few uh, documentaries on this. And he's a uh, kind of a freelancer of sorts, I think, for the BBC, at least an independent shooter and director. There's Crop Circle Communique and then there's Crop Circle Communique 2. Is there a yes. difference between these? I couldn't really figure this out because the dates are kind of murky and there wasn't a lot of information. But what I do know is the one we're going to talk about is Crop Circle Communique 2. Okay. Part 2. Okay. And the subtitle is Revelations. Hmm. And I yeah, believe yeah. it was purchased by Discovery Channel. And that's the ones, that's the entity who aired it. Yeah, okay. At least on uh, UK TV. So I'm thinking that's where we're getting our version from, which was probably just taped with a VCR when it aired. And we're looking at a digital copy of that. Well, it starts off here, you know, Pat and Colin <laughs> notice a circle that uh, some stocks were flattened around a node at approximately a, a, in a 10-inch band. That's one that they think is genuine. They're going in and pointing out the aspects they believe mark a genuine one, like the, the weaving, the gentle 90-degree bends of the stocks and no breaking, and pointing out aspects of a what they believe to be a genuine circle that are not found in the fake ones, which is a lot of trampling and broken stocks and all that. So the documentary then goes on to talk about the summer of 1990. And this is the incident here with Pat Delgado. The BBC and Nippon TV, Japan, they go to the ramparts of Bratton Castle in Wiltshire. And they were saying, well, we set up these high-tech image intensifier cameras and we watched for three weeks. And this site was suggested by Colin Andrews and Pat Delgado. And what happens is that a circle appears on July 25th, 1990. But this circle was revealed to be man-made uh, using the camera footage and the ground investigation. Well, a second formation appears, uh, but it's too far away. And then, and then I believe another attempt in 1991, as far as I could tell from the, the narration here, appears underneath the cameras, but they can't really tell what made it. That's a very curious statement from the narrator. Well, what we're talking about here with Pat Delgado, this happens in September of 1991. So a, a pictogram forms in Kent, 
there was a tip-off to a national newspaper, as we now know it's today. And so again, this seems like a very spurious setup here. But this is what Pat Delgado says on camera. He says, quote, I classed it as I would lean towards saying it was genuine, and I feel that it's on the cards, that it is genuine. But that doesn't mean to say that every other one is a hoax. I'm only talking about that one. I consider that all the others are genuine that we've said are genuine, end quote. So Pat is commenting on the one he was shown, but it calls into question which one was he shown? Was it the one made by Doug and Dave? Was that made later? Was that made that day and he just made a mistake? I, it's a little sketchy here and I don't really trust tabloids. <laughs> so the narration goes on to say the Today newspaper claimed that two men in their 60s had constructed the formation. It seems later that these guys were paid by Today to make one and set up Pat Delgado so they could make a big splash in the headlines saying, look, we tricked a, uh, an expert. We figured it out by our paper and you'll see how. Yeah, and again, those two men are Doug and Dave. Dave Chorley and Doug Bauer, yes. right? Yes. Yes. Oh, finally it stuck with me. <laughs> well, the documentary goes on to uh, list some people who have studied this a lot. Jürgen Kronig, uh, his name comes up in the early research uh, phases of crop circles, and he's on camera saying, well, at least the Doug and Dave one, like, well, they did uh, do a pretty good simple circle in a very short amount of time with amazing speed. And it was a very highly effective, but very simple method. And the circle doesn't look too bad. Like, you know, it's like, okay, for a simple circle, it's just round. It's not terrible. It's okay. But he's also seen circles where the corn lies flat going around stones, bigger stones laying in the field, which this technique did not. And what I picture is something like, uh, you ever seen those uh, Zen gardens with the, with the sand? Yeah, of course. And uh, they've been carefully raked. It's something yeah. like that in a pattern. Well, this is what's interesting as the documentary goes on is that there's a competition now in July of 1992 put on by The Guardian and also sponsored by a German magazine, PM Magazine. I'm not even sure that that's uh, around anymore or any of this is around anymore. This is a little while ago where they had 12 teams compete overnight to create crop circles and at least ones that are similar to ones that the seriologists say are unhoaxable. So... And then the judges will be the Center for Crop Circle Studies, some people who have actually studied real ones. So they're going to they're gonna be the judges, but we do know that these are fake. But there's another notable name that comes up, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, and he's the one who organized the competition. You remember him? We've discussed him on the show. Yeah, actually, Brandon Masula brought him up uh, when we had him on episode 145. That was back in June of 2019 with his, his book, The Ghost Studies, which is wow. a really fascinating yeah. book. He's got a degree in parapsychology. And yes. he brought up Dr. Sheldrake in his visit with us. So, boy, those transcripts have come in handy. <laughs> yeah. And it, one of the things that Brandon says, quote, that really opened my eyes to all these new alternative views on consciousness and the collective consciousness yes. and Carl Jung and Rupert Sheldrake. So, yes, an unusual name, sort of, and a prominent name in the field of paranormal studies and consciousness studies. So, you get to see him on tape as a younger man. That's interesting. What he had to say was that uh, the groups did better than expected, uh, especially at night or overnight, and they expected more noise and lights with these teams. But the 50 people who competed, they were kind of swallowed up in the darkness, and people hardly knew they were there. So that's another aspect that uh, we have said in parts one and two, that you can be out in these fields and not be noticed very easily. And another judge here, uh, Richard Andrews, he was commenting on uh, how they have to judge. He said you have to be very careful judging. But the thing that was missing 
from these crafted circles, these uh, uh, created ones overnight, was the lovely flow of the stocks, which makes it look like they've gone down like water. Scott and I actually just looked at a video today where even in the flattened parts where you would expect people who have trampled them with a board or a roller, something you need to get uh, the job done very quickly, and from the air, it's laid down in a sheen in a pattern where it looks like it's, it actually looks like it's basket woven, like the weave on right. a basket or a rug. It's just, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it really is amazing. And as I said before, it's like stitching or embroidering, how the threads go with a stitch in one direction and you can create a pattern even as it's laid down. And that's part of the design. So if people are doing it, like that's pretty brilliant. I don't know how they're doing it. Well, guess what? Uh, Doug and Dave refused to enter the competition because I, uh, look, they're older at this point. They got nothing to prove. So there were some younger folks that participated, the, the Cambridge team of young guys, and they came in third. There was another guy who participated that we're going to hear from, and I believe his name's Jim Schnabel. He's a young guy here in this documentary, but he is an admitted hoaxer, I believe, and he's going to express some thoughts. Before we get to that, though, remember we talked about the Wessex Skeptics, that group? In 1991, they created a, a circle and then they got Busty Taylor to go in and say it was authentic, I believe. And uh, he was pointing out that some of the errors or asymmetries that he thought made it an authentic circle were actually created by the Wessex skeptics. And they said, well, there you go. You, you thought this was significant? Well, no, it's just part of the process of us hoaxing this thing. And then I believe they also tried to fool Dr. Terrence Meaden. And I think, I think I mentioned that in part two. Well, experts can be fooled all the time. Just look at the modern art world and all the, all the forgeries that get uh, proclaimed as real. That's one of the documentaries I was talking about, which I was going to draw parallels to the crop circles. That was Made You Look, which is a documentary yeah. that talks about some high-level forgeries and people getting caught off guard. Renowned experts yeah. being caught off guard yeah. by that. Yeah. Part of it is, I think you want to believe it's real and right. uh, maybe you get swept up into it. But then again, with the art forgeries, they're purposely trying to fool you. So they know what to put in your way, that there are going to be uh, signs that you may not see because they know what you're going to look for. One of the things that goes on in these investigations with the crop circles, it's not like, you know, if you watch a lot of true crime television or listen to these podcasts or anything, mm -hmm. one of the things that you realize is that the investigators don't give out all the things that prove what happened in the crime. They don't give out all right, the details right. because then if someone confesses to it, they want the person to bring forth details that haven't been made public. The catch here with the crop circles is, is that the researchers are all telling the world everything that they think makes a real one, which then is like issuing a challenge to the hoaxers to say, oh, yeah. okay, well, this is what they're looking for. We've got a laundry list of exactly what they think makes it real. Right. Can we fake this, that, and the other thing? It tells yeah. them everything. What would be interesting would be to come up with a list of things that you look for, but then not tell anybody What's on that list, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. but right, yeah, well, that's obviously not going to happen. And at this point, the, it's a big mess. Why bother? I mean, there are reasons, but let's hear from some hoaxers, at least the ones that have gone on camera to confess to having hoaxed a bunch of them. 20 minutes in, uh, almost at 21 minutes into the documentary. I think this is Jim Schnabel. I, they didn't uh, put a title under his, uh, his talking head here, but he says, quote, I originally did it as an experiment. But as time went on, I was caught up by different motivations. One of them is pride in having made this kind of artistic creation and seeing the effect it has on people. Sometimes it's negative effects, unfortunately. Sometimes it's positive effects. You know, people have had their headaches removed or whatever. 
That's interesting. And I guess the sense of knowing the truth about something that no one else knows is something which we all enjoy once in a while. So there you go. They're in on the joke. They created the joke. They could see all these people creating a fuss over something they did. That's part of the rush of the, uh, the excitement of being a hoaxer. Uh, as Rob Irving says, another hoaxer here, he says, well, you go in there and you do it, you come out, it's a clean cut, you feel larger than life, and it's just like in the film. So you, you got away with something that people are now like, oh, all a, a titter about. So, and another hoaxer, Pam Price, she's a blonde British woman, I, I think probably in her 40s. She is a crop circle hoaxer, and she says, well, once you're out in the fields, it's so dark, your eyes soon become accustomed to that, so much so that you imagine the people in the road could see you, which of course they couldn't. But it's almost like daylight you can see so clearly. So, yeah, your eyes adjust, especially on a moonlit night. That's also, she's explaining why you probably don't see a lot of flashlights out there with these hoaxers. But now we get to Doug Bauer in the documentary and one of his first quotes here. He says, we just couldn't wait for the knights to go out and take our equipment. We were sort of concocting all different sorts of equipment to do different things. And as I say, it became an obsession in the end. Okay, now that's an important thing to take a note here because why would you keep doing it? Well, there's something about this process, even for the hoaxers, that sweeps them up in it. And he goes on to say, quote, the circles that we created in 1978 with the standing walls of corn as if they'd been cut out of pastry with a knife, they were our doing. And we started it way back in that time. So he's laying claim to uh, everything prior to 1978 and from then on. And then the tone of the documentary goes on with the narrator saying, uh, well, the, the, the earliest circles claimed by Bauer and Chorley are the foundation for the whole crop circle mystery. So there you go. It's these guys. But Doug Bauer goes on to say, what we did for 13 years, I want to see our story accepted once and for all. And I want these people, the so-called experts and the researchers that have been doing all this work all these years to come up and say to us, well, you were right after all. So from their angle now, they want credit. That's why they came forward. Hey, you guys are uh, making a big fuss of stuff that we started, we did, we did most all of them. But as we learned in part two, they had to back down from that claim. So if you look at the motivations for Doug and Dave, as we talked about in part two, it was more of a lighthearted prank. They were inspired by the Australian uh, crop circle flattening from the, from the or the saucer nests uh, incident in Australia. And maybe they were fans, maybe they just had a few more pints than they should have and decided this would be fun and just kept up with it and then eventually got swept up in the, in the fervor of it. As I said, became kind of an obsession in the end. Well, what about the thinking of the other people that have claimed to have done this and the, the younger people? Like we said, Jim Schnabel, I believe. What he says is in the summer of 1992, following all the revelations of hoaxing the year before, there was a certain amount of despondency among the circle believers. They wanted to have something which really tied the circle's phenomenon definitely to some paranormal mechanism, such as UFOs, for example. And we thought, well, we just kind of felt that we needed to give them what they wanted, which is a curious statement I, I find. I don't, what do you think, Scott? It's like, well, these people wanted to believe so much, so we're just going to give them something to believe in. Or are you really just making fools of them? Well, here's the thing that's unfortunate about this. You know, and like I said, it's more complex than just hoaxing versus non-hoaxing. And we've gone into that and we're going into that tonight here in part three with our conclusions and everything. But it is frustrating. I can see why the researchers are frustrated to right. have all this hoaxing going on. And then the hoaxers are frustrated that they're not getting credit and there's all this 
complex sword fighting. It's just re- really adversarial. What would be interesting to me is if all the artists said, you know what, we're not doing anything this year. We're all going to take a year off. Let's see what <laughs> happens. Let's see if anything happens. And that's a little Ooh, bit, COVID did that. Yeah. And that's why we're trying to find numbers for 2020. Uh, were they up? Yeah. Were they down? It's my understanding that people, uh, due to quarantine rules, they were at risk if they went out. And we're still trying to get more details on that, which maybe we'll have within the body of this episode when we hear back from some people. Right, but right. if you remove the hoaxers from the equation, what's left? Is truly nothing left. But the problem is you can't get them to necessarily all stop because they're not organized and they're coming from all these. It's like, okay, great. You've made your point. You can make really cool yeah. stuff. We've seen some YouTube videos. <laughs> can you guys just stand down for one year and let's see if anything <laughs> really happens? Like if you yeah. all stood down and nothing happened, the debate's over. If you all stand down and something happens, the debate's over. But as long yeah. as everybody's kind of lying about who's doing what, we'll never know. And the message could be, you know, whatever. We're going to cure cancer, how to get back to the moon using an <laughs> onion and a bagel. It's like there's all this stuff. To, we're not going to know <laughs> because everybody's right. so busy going, I did this. I didn't do it. I did it. Did you do it? You know, it's just, I see why the researchers yes. are irritated because it's I'm yeah. irritated with it, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm irritated that you're irritated. Yeah. But that's a really interesting point, Scott. We don't deserve the messages. We don't get to find out what they are. You know what? That would be the Twilight Zone yeah. angle on this. Like, yeah. we give you all this, and this is what you idiots do with it. Well, yeah. never mind then. We're going to yeah. go somewhere else. Yeah. Because the people in this galaxy, they're going to appreciate what we're doing, and, and they're going to get a huge boost for their civilization because they're not bumbling around and thwarting each other's efforts. So... It seems like some of these hoaxers, they can't help it. Yeah. They're being compelled to do this. Whether they got into it as a fun thing, it turns out it's like, well, even Doug and Dave said themselves, it became kind of an obsession. So whatever you want to believe about them, after a while, they couldn't stop. They couldn't wait to get out. There's something that took over. That's what I'm saying about this. And this is what's interesting about Jim Schnabel's point of view. He's almost sounding, at least when you hear the tone of it in the documentary, like he's helping these believers. They desperately want to believe and see something that connects to something paranormal. Yeah, that's not your position, buddy. That's not the job. (laughs) No one put an ad out and said, wanted guy to help believers, you know? <laughs> I'm going to give you some ghost you, footage. You've hired yourself I know you want to and given it. yourself yeah. a pat on the back for a job no one asked you to do. No, I mean, that's the position here. And it is a little bit of a of couching. It's taking the blame off you of being a jerk. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, well, these people wanted to believe so much. And we just felt like, well, let's give them something. But yep, then that's again- That's what Bernie Madoff thought too. <laughs> you're giving the people what they want. Yeah. All at the same time, it's not possible to, to keep that going. Yeah. But there's other things going on here, okay? As we take a look at uh, the documentary a little later, this shows them creating this giant balloon. They buy this large balloon, they fill it with helium, and they put a light inside it. And then they connect it with a wire to a battery that's on the ground, and then they can turn it off and on and make it wink, okay? Well, what they say in the documentary is, well, we just want to see what the reaction would be to see if people would say it's a balloon with a light inside or an amazing UFO. Well, guess what? Some people are going to say it was a UFO, okay? Yeah. This thing blinking in a field where crop circles and other unexplainable phenomenon has happened with lights and round things. And you put something like that, of course, people are going to phone in and say, hey, guess what I saw? A big round lighted UFO. So, but let's look at another personal reason and psychological angle for these hoaxers. This is Pam Price coming back in saying, quote, I took part in that for my own reasons because I feel in the past I've been deluding myself and therefore allowing other people, and it's hard to just transcribe this, but I think basically like take advantage of her or influence her in her thinking and beliefs. 
and so on, she says. So I really wanted to see how people reacted because it was important to me to see how people reacted because I was learning about myself at the same time. So that's another interesting angle. And I think that maybe she felt perhaps foolish or wanted to re-examine her own beliefs about the phenomenon. So she said, well, if I can be taken in by some things I don't now believe, could I influence other people? Because I was influenced. So it's a little bit of self-introspection. But she's doing it for her own personal reasons in creating these hoaxes. Jim Schnabel goes on to say, someone said that the police had been watching the fields and had seen these lights and had been spooked by them. And he says uh, with a wry smile, I thought that was pretty amusing. So he put one over on the cops. Of course, that's another angle to pranking uh, is fooling authorities. Pam Price comes back and says, well, some friends of mine actually rang me up a few weeks later, not knowing I had anything to do with it. And they said uh, they'd seen this light. It was enormous. They thought it was an atom bomb going off and somebody else thought it was the end of the world because it was such an enormous orange light. Well, I know how enormous it was. It was quite small and it was only there for a second or two. So as she said, quote, so it's almost like there's this intense need to make it happen. She's enjoying putting one over on people she knows because maybe she was fooled herself, I think is what she's getting at. Yeah. Now she's in control. She's the one who knows the secret knowledge of what's really going on. And seeing all these varied reactions, like, oh my gosh, it was this huge glowing UFO. She's like, well, it wasn't that big. It's like one of those kids punching balls, you know. Right. Getting back to Jim Schnabel, quote, the problem with any phenomenon is that you tend to see things that you expect to see. And that was a problem I had when I first got involved with circles. I was blind to all the evidence that these things were being made by people. This is kind of like the sentiment of Pam Price. It was only when I started to really deeply consider that was happening that I was able to see all the evidence that it was happening and was able to accept, for example, the testimony of Doug and Dave about their circle-making activities and was able to understand what some other people were telling me about how they had been able to make circles and how easy it was. And of course, from there, I was able to go on and make circles myself and really establish that these things are too easily made by people for them to be some kind of paranormal phenomenon. Now listen to this, because you may think, well, well there you go, that's his belief. But listen to this next statement, because I found this to be also rather curious. He goes on to say, because I've investigated hoaxing, I've been associated with the view that all crop circles are and always have been hoaxed. But I actually believe that there is a genuine phenomenon that lies beneath all the hoaxing. I'm not sure what the nature of it is, but I believe it's there. Unfortunately, it's probably too rare for people to notice if they just go out on a casual basis to the countryside and wait for something to happen. So there you go. There's a hoaxer saying like, no, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's not normal. It's not ordinary and it's not mundane. And this is the point I'm heading towards is that there's something involved with the hoaxers themselves that if you spend enough time in those fields doing this, you'll get wrapped up in it in ways you did not maybe expect. Well, there's a lot of compulsion going on. That's what's that, weird that, about Exactly. It. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. There's something going on here where you get wrapped up and it's like, why do you keep doing this? Because people, it's like, well, if you're making art, that's reason enough in itself. It feels like there's a sociological component to this. It almost feels like when the Stanford prison experiment came off the rails, it seems like people <laughs> are just really like, we're the prison guards, you're the prisoners. Right. We're the hoaxers, and you're going to look at our hoaxes, and they're going to make you feel neat. <laughs> Wait, what? I, it, like, <laughs> get out of there. Get, get, what, yeah. You know, it's like, what are you doing? 
and there's ego and all that stuff going into it and, you know, all kinds right. of personalities. And it is interesting to me, but it occurs to me, and I'll say this again, I'm sure before this episode right. is done, the easiest way for the hoaxers to prove that they're all hoaxes is to all agree to stop making them for a while. And then if none yeah. show up, game over, you win. Right. Every right. single one's a hoax. Yeah. So go for it, guys. Stop <laughs> making them and show us that they're all hoaxes. If you're so anxious to prove that, you know. But that's the thing. Maybe that's not it. As we've just discussed here, there are various reasons. And uh, some of it's personal. Some of it's for the usual prank reasons. Some of it may be to make some people feel foolish in that kind of satisfying way that you know how it's done and maybe you were uh, fooled at some point, and now you're on the fooling end. You are the prankster. But this documentary ends with the comments of Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, getting back to them, who also make a curious statement about the nature of this compulsion that it turns out to be. Doug Bauer says, quote, I think really that the most valuable experience that we've learned from the whole 13 years of circle making has been the wonderful feeling that we've got in the world that we live in. And I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. Dave can't explain it either. But when we're both sitting in the field together and looking at the whole thing, that sort of feeling comes through us, that, that feeling of mystery, why we did it, I can't explain. And so Dave Chorley's on camera saying, quote, if you was to discuss it rationally, it's crazy. But were we, and Doug has said it, and I used to laugh at him at first, but I'd even have to concur with him sometimes that were we being told almost to go out and do them? I know it sounds crazy, end quote. Doug Bauer then interrupts Dave and says, just look at the light on this corn now. Look at that evening sky. You can't help feel that there's something different about it all. And that's the end of their statement. But that was pretty telling. Were we almost told to go out and do them? And that's a famous quote from Dave. A lot of people have latched yeah. onto that with all kinds of meaning. Because some people have said, That's what I love oh, about it. Yeah. It's MI5. It's Ministry right. of Defense. It's whatever. <laughs> they told him to go do it. Yeah. He's doing a little inside joke, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Were we told right. to go out and do it? Or it's say that we did it? <laughs> Maybe so. Because you yeah. know what? We're messing with you. And you know why? Because somebody's covering something up. Or is he saying, somehow we had an alien compulsion. We've become part <laughs> of the real crop circles because yeah. something is forcing us to make these. Yeah. Or, I mean, what is he saying there? It doesn't even make sense. I know. That's why yeah. I loved about when we first discussed it or, or you know, because you hadn't watched it yet. And I yeah. said, uh, this is kind of interesting that he says this. Now, if you take it at face value as earnestly as you can from watching him on camera saying this, he's talking about, you know, why does anybody do art? Well, you know, why does somebody climb a mountain? Because it was there that you feel compelled to, and it's not necessarily saying it's uh, extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial or it's from another dimension or something. If you take him at just face value, he's saying, look, I, I know this sounds crazy, but we, we felt compelled to. And that compunction was almost like somebody telling them to go out and do this. Now, again, unless it's an inside joke, and he wasn't, you know, wank, wank here, he sounds very earnest in that, no, this is something beautiful and unusual about this. And we don't know why we ended up doing it so much, but we felt like we had to. And on the very surface of it, you look at the evening sky that Doug Bauer points to, 
And it is beautiful out there, just for the nature of it. It's kind of magical. If you've ever been out uh, camping and you walk away from the fire and uh, maybe you go to the bathroom and you look up at the night sky, there's something magical about being out there. That's not a compulsion, but we like to go camping. We like to get back to nature. What these guys are saying is that there's no rational reason we kept doing this, but maybe something compelled us to. Well, after hearing their comments, it's my opinion that whatever you think about Doug and Dave, they have a little bit of reverence for the phenomenon. Yeah, it does seem that way. At the end, they, they became part of something that they may not even have realized themselves. That's possible. Or they're shills. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's what I'm saying. It could be both. There's yeah, no... That's uh, true. They had too much fun undercover. <laughs> It's like well, the guy that got, joins the mob yeah. and then winds up, you know, hey, this is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, the lifestyle is nice. There's plenty of good Italian food. So, yeah. but in this case, uh, I think there could be a couple of things going on. That seems to be the overarching theme here. It's not just one thing. Yeah. Once you start dabbling and you open up the door and you actually get on the ground, in the field, boots in the field, something happens to you, whether you want it to or not. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kaylin Bell. When I'm not searching for the Scat Man of North Baltimore, Ohio, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. Well, we're going to switch gears here. We did want to, before we dive into everything tonight, we wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of emails we got from an Australian helicopter pilot who was so kind as to write in uh, once he heard the series. I'm glad to have him as a listener. His name is Mark. I just want to read this first note from him. He says, hi, Scott, I would like to emphasize my point about the general public's perception of military forces and personnel. My experience also extends to the U.S. military. I spent about six months training at Fort Rucker, Alabama, and later traveled extensively to Fort Lewis, Washington in the late 90s. Most military personnel are employed in green roles, he puts out quotes, i.e. conventional operations using conventional equipment and operating under standard security clearances. Military personnel are just a subgroup of your everyday community. They have partners, kids, pets, and mortgages, just like everyone else, and have surprisingly similar interests and aspirations. But they often have access to state-of-the-art equipment. Most conduct themselves as expected, but occasionally an opportunity arises to either have some fun with the public or just do some rubbernecking in the public eye. However, once you enter the covert, special world of black operations and intelligence, it is a different story. Surveillance by nature is clandestine and therefore not obvious and certainly not by noisy helicopters and low-flying jets. I am certain all militaries and intelligence agencies have a great interest in fringe subjects, but one would never know. That is the nature of security. When I was in the UK, 1990 and 91, the British Army were investigating the efficacy of using airships for surveillance of the IRA. The airships could loiter quietly for extended periods inside the cloud at night, employing advanced infrared and thermal imaging equipment. Imagine what is available now. Forrest mentioned some videos from the 80s or 90s that featured military helicopters, perhaps similar to this one. He sent a video link, and it was in fact a link from uh, one of the documentaries with Colin in it, and the helicopters are buzzing as he's driving by. Mark says, in this video, one can see a gazelle and lynx helicopter clearly practicing advance to contact in the anti-tank role. The investigator does not appreciate that Wiltshire is right in the middle of one of the busiest army training areas in Europe. I will not discount the investigator's comment about the ball of light. I can't see anything. The pilot is certainly not backing up to keep something in sight, probably just drifting due to inattention. 
one never backs a helicopter without pedal turning to clear the tail. The crop circle and onlookers just happened to be a passing distraction during a routine training flight. It seems to me that even the most intelligent and well-informed investigators lose their critical thinking when certain emotive subjects are encountered. Mixing the mundane with the genuinely unexplained makes it so much harder for all of us to make any sense of what is going on. After all I have said, I am still convinced that crop circles are one of many unexplainable phenomena. I am still full-time employed in aviation and do a lot of night work using night vision imaging system, and a little surprised about how little I have seen in 34 years. Only 40 minutes flight south from my home city, Cairns, is the location of a very old crop circle story. Saucer nests? So I have always been on the lookout. So uh, he's saying here he's uh, 40 minutes <laughs> yeah. flight from the original Tully saucer nest. And what he's reacting to here is this video that we sent him where Colin is uh, talking in a documentary about these helicopters, which they filmed, and there seemed to be a little ball of light in or around the helicopters. And I thought this was an interesting perspective because Mark is clearly saying, look, this is a classic military procedure that's going on here. There's training going on with how you, an anti-tank helicopter approaches you know, forgive my terminology. I know I'm screwing that up, Mark, when you hear this. But here's the thing. With that first video he sent, I couldn't really see the ball of light. But then Forrest, mm-hmm. you had tracked down two other ones that were much, much clearer. And I shared those with Mark just today as we're recording this. And I got lucky because when I sent them to him, it was 4.30 in the morning, his time in Australia. But he got up at 6.30 for a flight and he checked his mm-hmm. email and he wrote back about these clearer videos. Hey, Scott, lucky you did catch me. It's 6.30 a.m. and I'm about to leave the hotel for a ferry flight from Brisbane to Cairns, an all-day event. Thanks for the video. The quality is far better than the one I linked. Yes, I can see the light ball, but to say definitively what it is, maybe a genuine ball of light, a piece of metal or aluminum foil reflecting the sunlight, or maybe something else, I don't know. Sorry, I'm still unconvinced about the role of the two Army helicopters in anything other than normal anti-tank training. Either of the crew may have seen the ball of light and pointed it out as a curiosity. Surveillance by helicopter is best done at height, at least above a thousand feet above ground level, and usually in a slow, wide orbit, so that the FLIR camera operator, that's forward-looking infrared, I believe, can stab the head to the target. I think stab means stabilize. (laughs) I would not use helicopters at all if I were assigned the task to monitor crop circles and or investigators. So the flight maneuvering he's talking about there is certainly very familiar to me with the LAPD because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. They go to altitude, not always a thousand feet, but they get up there and right. they circle and that's how they do their surveillance. So I think that's, he's describing a similar maneuver there and they have FLIR on their choppers. Yeah. A couple of points here of discussion. You can find those clips that I saw with the DVD of Crop Circles, The Quest for Truth, the right. documentary, Which it's, is I think it's my favorite. But it's not in the stream part. As so many good bonus clips are not with streaming. That's why I'm old school. I like to get the DVDs. I still get the Netflix DVDs because you get a lot of behind the scenes stuff on the discs that you don't get with streaming. So there's a handful of clips, I think three or four. One is Colin Andrews talking about the CIA interfering and misdirecting crop circle research. Uh, That is one clip. Yeah, he had some very unusual encounters. Oh, yeah, yeah. With some strange folks, to be sure. So he talks about that. That's a bonus feature that's at the end of the documentary, but also these two clips. So it's about eight minutes total uh, between the two clips. And they're both instances of military helicopters, clearly British military helicopters, in a field flying low and doing their maneuvers, 
they could be doing the maneuvers and there could also be balls of light. The That's two right. are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And the other thing is, and of course, Mark was looking at this at 630 in the morning, his time is that the, the ball of light in the one clip, you can see it. And can we have links to these clips? I'm not sure if we can without getting in trouble. Well, really, if you want to see these, you should buy the DVD of the documentary, because if you're at all interested in the subject, I think it's my favorite documentary, that and the other one. Yeah. That's Quest for Truth, right? That yes. Called about. What on Earth? Yeah. Question mark. Colon. Inside the Crop Circles Mystery. That's the other one. Yes, that's the other one I yeah, really liked. Yeah, the one you uh, just said was your favorite is Crop Circles Quest for Truth. Well, they're, they're both very good, but I have a little a fondness because way before we decided to even think of a podcast, before I knew what a podcast was, I had picked up this DVD because I was interested in the topic. That's so why I, I got bought it into, one of the books I have too, way before well, the Well, here's the other <laughs> weird thing. This is why uh, this, uh, this podcast, you and I, Scott... This topic, it's all kismet because I had thought that I bought this book, uh, Crop Circle Signs of Contact by Colin Andrews, like maybe a year ago because I knew like, oh, that's, yeah, we're, we should cover that one of these days. Turns out I found a receipt. I purchased it like back in 2004 oh, when wow. I, in a visit to Mercer Island, Washington, for some reason. I don't even remember the trip. 12 I don't know years why I was before there. we started the show. No, it was a fascinating topic back then. This yeah. book, uh, I, I didn't really know who Colin Andrews was, but the book sounded captivating. Yeah. It seemed like one of the authoritative books on the subject. So I picked it up and, and didn't even crack it until we started uh, research on this subject. So I knew I, I would get around to it at some point. But anyway, the documentary I'm talking about is directed by William Gazeki. So that was back uh, 2003 or so, 2002. And so on the DVD, though, that's when you get the bonus materials as uh, extra chapters at the end. And that's where these two clips appear. But it's clearly the balls of light that are in the field. Now, if you think about the helicopter pilots, it's maybe they didn't see it. But you would think that they'd be very hyper aware, especially, uh, it, that was an interesting comment, due to unattentiveness, they're just drifting backwards. It's hard for me to second guess. Mark is clearly extremely experienced right. with this. Yeah, I'm going by his assessment here. I'm just saying that uh, they yeah, could be I mean, doing well, their maneuvers. If, if there's two helicopters, maybe one is training and the other one's standing by to train yeah. or whatever. And if, especially if there are people that are green then you might be drifting. What I was right. going to say that I didn't get a chance to finish earlier was that with, with, that's okay. With Mark evaluating this at 6.30 in the morning, he might not have noticed that the little ball of light actually changes position. There's one point right. at which it's in front of the helicopter in the shot, and then another point when it's down behind it. Yeah. And it's questionable as to whether or not those may be two separate entities. To Mark's point about it may be some aluminum or a reflection, I can see that. The other mm -hmm. thing that I thought was, I was curious whether or not they were seeing it in real life as they were filming, or it could also be a reflection in the lens of a, a navigation right. light on the helicopter. Mm. And it did sound like, based on the dialogue they were having off camera, like they could all see it. It sounded right. something like that. And I don't know if he noticed it changing positions. You know, he got up early in the morning to go do a flight. Yeah, yeah. He got this email sure. from me and he had to watch eight minutes of video. So <laughs> but the last I, thing he needs is us, uh, yeah, pestering him with. Yeah. Silly, so I would agree problems. with him that yeah. they were just doing training. And I agree that that probably makes a very dramatic impression on you if you're in the field, Colin included, studying crop circles and these choppers are flying really low and buzzing all around sure. and doing all this stuff. It's like, might not be your first thought to go, oh, it's a class, <laughs> you know? Well, sure. <laughs> but, but the only thing that's really significant about this is that there is suggested British military awareness of the phenomenon that they they know about, or at least uh, service members, pilots do, 
that they're aware of this phenomenon. But as he said, well, hoops. I mean, these it's, are people who's not aware of it. I mean, it's a world famous phenomenon. Well, that's, yeah, it's not like they're going to go, what? Never heard of him. You know, right? <laughs> but if you read his other emails from Mark, he said generally the attitude of military personnel, at least these pilots, is like, oh, it's a bunch of baloney. Yes. And uh, they don't take it seriously. At least they don't in conversation say that they take it seriously. But they are aware of it. Because here's the other thing that he said. Yes, these are people, they're not some outer space force from another planet who are not aware of things going on Earth or are human. They live within our communities. They do the same things we do. Of course, they've heard of stories that we all have. And people see these balls of light all the time who have no interest in crop circles. Yeah, they report almost as a separate phenomenon, not as really associated with crop circles. Yes, and I forgot, I'm glad you mentioned his other email because I actually wanted to read that as well. It was pretty compelling. Yeah. This was the first email that he reached out to us, came through a contact form on our website. I listened with great interest to your crop circles part one. The phenomenon has always been fascinating to me due to a personal experience. During 1990 to 1991, I was an Australian Army helicopter instructor on exchange to the British Army at Middle Wallop in Hampshire, UK. Sometime during the summer of 1991, I was one of the military helicopters reported by the local media. The reports indicated that I was conducting secret military surveillance of the crop circles and the special interest groups investigating. When in fact, the truth was I was just using the advantage of my position and had my student fly about the circle while I got some photos for the family. My work <laughs> colleagues thought it was all quite amusing that the Aussie had generated some stir in the media. They were all very flippant about the phenomena and said they were all hoaxes. Personally, I was not convinced. I had flown over the same field no more than 12 hours before at night whilst on night vision goggles and had not seen the markings. Although I have no record of the exact date and location, I do have one photo, a scan of a positive print. I'm sure databases exist of the shapes and the date and location could be determined. Let me know if you'd like a copy. Incidentally, I know from personal experience that some black military helicopter reports are just crews having a bit of fun or just genuinely interested <laughs> on whatever happens to be the subject. Yeah. Military personnel are just another part of the community that happen to have access to some fantastic equipment. I may or may not have been guilty of scaring a train driver in the night with a close encounter spotlight routine. All very funny until someone loses an eye. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. Thanks for the great podcast. Oh, that's fun. Yes. Yeah. So I'd, I'd actually forgotten about that. I'm glad you brought up the first email because I needed to right. go back and mention that. And I, if I was a better storyteller, I would have reversed the way we told those oh, two. But you did just fine. I Thanks. was very much entertained and enthralled. <laughs> Again, I think the the only salient point here about that is that it acknowledges to some people, some researchers that there is a military acknowledgement of the phenomenon and the balls of light. And we're specifically talking about balls of light here, not the crop circles, because you wouldn't uh, do a survey from that low in the ground. Uh, you want to be up high. But then you ask, what were they doing so low? Well, I tend to believe, Mark, here that it was just regular maneuvers, but there also could have been balls of light there. Because it's not always just when military helicopters are there. There are tons of photos and videos now of these balls of light. Uh, Golden Ball Hill, we've mentioned, is an area with a lot of activity and a lot of crop circles. And the reason it's called that is because people often see an amber ball of light there. And people have made that connection. Doesn't mean that there is. We're going to examine that. Is there really a connection between the balls of light and the crop circles? But I want to mention this as well. In the documentary, at about 1 hour 16 minutes, uh, 30 seconds in, 37 seconds in, there's a photographer who is well-known to researchers here named Steve Alexander, 
formerly of Kaja Gugu. A really outstanding, fun 90s rock and roll. Mullet. Uh, uh, it's a mullet. Daryl, Daryl uh, Hall haircut yeah. mullet of sorts. It's a mighty boosh. Yes. Uh, it is outstanding, but he's got really good video of a ball of light going over the field. And, and Scott and I just watched this before this recording uh, session for this part here because I want him to see this and that this thing is glinting. Yeah, it could be a mylar balloon, could be a piece of foil perhaps, except that it's not following the wind patterns that you see blowing in the wheat. I mean, we've look, we've all seen balloons uh, let loose and they're kind of, you know, half deflated and floating across the landscape here or a field. You know, it's a very common sight. And since probably, uh, what, the, the 90s, we've had mylar balloons become popular. And certainly people could be thinking that's the case here because this thing is somewhat flashing, which is odd, but it is pretty prominent in this video. And this event happened in 1990. And the interesting thing, though, that solidifies this is that Colin Andrews is talking about this. So Steve Alexander is filming this thing, moving around, going, dipping into the tire tracks into the uh, harvester tracks, it looks like it's examining some existing crop circles that were there. And then he pans back to show you the spatial relationship. So it's uh, probably a couple hundred meters, maybe a hundred mm -hmm. meters away. And then it goes off into the distance. And now here's the interesting thing about the clip. It goes down the hill and then it approaches a farmer in their tractor or combine and it goes over it. And you can see the farmer stop the combine yes. as it approaches. And it goes over the combine and kind of goes off into the hills and, and eventually disappears. Colin Andrews talked to that farmer in the combine. Yes. And said, yeah, this thing was 35 to 40 feet above me, went over the combine. That's why I stopped because I saw it too. And yeah. it didn't look like a balloon to him. So yeah, there, there you go. go. There's a lot of evidence, uh, visual anyway, of these things. And they're seen by people all the time, not just seriologists. They're seen by townsfolk and villagers. Well, I have an interesting balls of light story that I want to tell here in a minute. But before I do, yes. there is one other note that I wanted to address from a member of the Astonishing Research Corps, Major Burt Brender, who was reacting to uh, something that you had posited about, you know, I wonder if there was any possibility of these mm -hmm. being some kind of military signals or used for training or something like that. It didn't make sense to me that the military's wasting their time with making art in the crop fields. Yeah. But is this some kind of weird psyops thing? These are my initial questions I posted in River. It's like, you know what? Let's answer these questions. Let's see what we can find. Yeah. And he responded to that very kindly with his point of view. But that was my thing is that is there any known reason or anybody can think of any reason why this would be a, a psychological operation yes. by the military? Well, and, and for those of you listening, River is the app we use to uh, coordinate our research. It's kind of like Slack. We've been using it for a while now. So that's when, when you say River, that's where the astonishing... Mm. Research Corps lives in the river. Well, Major Brender, formerly of the 2nd Infantry Division, pointed out that crop circles are essentially anything similar to them are in no way part of any kind of operation he ever participated in. In fact, he said, quote, while there certainly could be technologies I don't know about, I've been an Army Armor Officer for 16 years, and I have never seen anything that does anything like what has been described in crop circle formations, nor do our tactics or doctrine call for making, reading, or using crop circles for our operations. If it has a U.S. or allied military origin, it isn't something that was a significant portion of any operation or training I saw in the U.S., Iraq, or Korea. Mm -hmm. You'd think you would have come across it, especially if it's something the Brits are doing. 
because the mm -hmm. US and the UK are friends and we tend to share military technology. So that's his take on that. Well, yes. I'd like to move now to some of the most famous ball of light footage that was ever taken. That's Oliver's Castle. And this is an interesting story because it, it leans into something that I and Forrest both were actually a part of at the time this was made. So it gives us a chance to uh, call back on some old knowledge. This video is the one that true believers in non-human origins of the circles will cite as being proof of orbs of light producing the circles. And it's easy to find online. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. But when you watch it, what you see are several small balls of light circling around over a field and then a series of circles appearing right there instantly in the crops below them. You can see the crops going down. It's pretty cool looking. Now, for years, this footage circulated and everyone felt certain it was proof of otherworldly forces at work. And even today, it is still posted in numerous places on YouTube and presented as factual, but unfortunately, it is a proven fake. On page 140 of Colin Andrews and Stephen J. Spignisi's book, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, they detail the backstory of this piece of evidential video. According to the man who filmed it, whose name was Waylay, W-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H, he was there at 5 a.m. on the morning of August 11th in 1996 with a video camera, and he captured these balls of light forming the circles below them. Colin said about it in the book, The whole film sequence is just a few seconds long, and my initial reaction upon first viewing it was that it was one of two things. It was either the most incredibly important UFO and crop circle film footage of all time, or it was one of the most elaborate frauds ever perpetrated on the world. Here's what I'm going to say. This video is extremely convincing visually. There's, of course, skeptics who would disagree on the grounds that something like this simply couldn't happen or exist, so it has to be fake. You, you always get that line of observation. But technically, when you watch it, it doesn't immediately stand out as fake, especially having been produced in 1996 when these kind of special effects would have been a challenge to create. I know this because in 1996, I was frequently working in special effects myself with incredibly talented artists on state-of-the-art equipment in rooms that cost around $1,500 an hour to use. You talking about the video toaster? Uh, no, we're way past that. We're talking... <laughs> oh, I see. We're, yeah, we're going to get into it here. There's no shortage of challenges here, not the least of which being that the shot was handheld. Now, to place an imaginary or CGI object into a shot with any movement of any kind, you have to do what is known as tracking. It's a piece of cake these days, but back then it required a lot of discipline. It could actually involve frame-by-frame -frame hand placement of something or rotoscoping to make the fake object appear married to the background. Eventually, tracking tools became available. They might even have been in the early stages at this point. This would allow a special effects artist to blow the image up significantly and select a pixel or group of pixels that are locked into the background and have software analyze the path that that pixel or group of pixels takes during the motion of the shot. The software generally, in this case, on a device known at the time as a Henry, mm -hmm. uh, which was actually manufactured by a company known as Quantel. Quoting from Wikipedia about Quantel, in 1992, Quantel released Henry, the first multi-layer compositing system, which became the worldwide industry standard for commercial production and went on to win the British government's Queen's Award for Export Achievement. Quantel's really? ninth such award, yes. Wow. Yeah, so, do you remember the Harry? The Harry yeah, the Harry was the predecessor to the Henry. Yeah. So this video, the Oliver's Castle video, was produced four years after that system was invented. Now, I'm not sure what the development of the tracking component of that software was at this time. I honestly can't remember. But you can stabilize handheld video and track something into it with a $3 app on your smartphone now. So back then, <laughs> these machines were hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of dollars, mm -hmm. which is why it was so expensive to do this type of compositing. 
So all of that said, this Waylay dude had the tools, skills, and power to create something like this because he worked at a company in Bristol called First Cut. Now, that technology uh-huh. was still so new that to most folks, it would have been magic to conceive of it having been faked. It took a tremendous amount of processing power to do this kind of compositing. And what you were paying for with those systems was very sophisticated computers that had processors way beyond the scope of anything a consumer had access to. So there's also the added benefit of one of the oldest compositing cover-up methods in the book, down-converting the final composited image to the worst resolution possible. That way, you don't notice the errors. VHS and poor quality videotape will conceal a lot, which is why it is so much harder to hoax something at higher resolutions, or used to be anyway. It's getting easier every day now. As Colin Andrews attempted to do, just as we would do in this situation, he tried to track the guy down who shot the video, and he soon found out that Waylay didn't exist. It was a pseudonym, in addition to being a homonym, as Colin points out. (laughs) It was Waylaid. Uh, Colin made some pretty great observations, too, about the original video. Waylay was not really following the balls of light with the camera, nor was he zooming in on them. This is the real trick with a fake video, because the photographer, or cinematographer, if you want to go that far, has to imagine the things that will be composited into the shot later. Much like Chris Pratt trying to pretend he's being chased by a pack of velociraptors on a green screen. (laughs) When you're filming this stuff, the end result is still only a figment of your imagination, and therefore you have to do what we call acting. Acting. Acting, I'm acting here. Now, not so many hoaxers are great at this. Shocker. So you get a whole Mm. lot of, hey, man, look at that. Jeez, I can't believe it. Because nothing's there when they're (laughs) filming it. Now, as Colin finally found this guy calling himself Waylay and determined his real name was actually John Wabe, W-A-B-E, it became clear the guy was out for money and royalties almost from the jump from the Oliver's Castle video. Scoundrel! Yes. Colin points out that in a videotaped confession, Wabe eventually said that he made the video for fun, thinking it would be good for a laugh. As I said before, he worked at a company in Bristol called First Cut, and they had post-production facilities. Now, Colin did posit that there may be something more to this than just doing it for fun. He suggests it could have been part of a government-motivated operation to further discredit Crop Circle Origins, which is plausible, given everything Colin's been through. However... I respectfully disagree with Colin in this case, at least without proof. And I'm going to say why. I spent literally decades hanging out with the kind of guys who could do this stuff. And during that time, they did a lot of monkeying around. Having software like that at your disposal is like being handed the keys to a Ferrari. If you're any good with it and you're between paying gigs using it, I mean, why not make a fake crop circle UFO video, especially when it's so new that people would be flabbergasted by it? Well, that's the line of thinking with the military helicopter pilots and that ordinary folks with millions of dollars worth of technology and fun gear. And there's, well, at least from my dad's point of view, when he was in the military, you know, in Korea, he would have to fly occasionally with these military chopper pilots uh, for the army flying uh, uh, Hueys because he was taking photographs. So he'd be leaning out the door, taking photos, aerial photos. You know, these guys would have a lot of fun, you could say. And uh, as he described them, fun-loving guys, a little bit crazy because they were so good at being pilots and they had so much time for practice and training and you get bored. So one chopper pilot, uh, he recalls, used to love to herd sheep. Yes. Until he hooked the front skids on a fence and ripped off the skids off of his... Bell Huey. Ooh, and, uh, that's not Got good. into a, a lot of trouble with that. Yes, also because uh, you've damaged some civilian property. So, well, it, you know what it reminds me of is when um, this gentleman in the Royal Air Force uh, flying a Hawker Hunter, which is a jet pilot named Alan Pollock 
performed an unauthorized, I'm reading from Wikipedia here, I had to look this up, but I didn't mm-hmm. remember it, performed unauthorized low flying over several London landmarks and then flew through the span of Tower Bridge on the Thames. I remember that. Yes. And he, yeah. Between the top and the bottom and the sides, like through the square, brilliant. He got in some trouble. He was protesting. Yes. I think the reduction in force. That's right. Uh, of, uh, was it that unit or the RAF yeah, in general? Yeah, he, he was marking the 50th anniversary of the founding of the RAF and as a demonstration against the Ministry of Defense for not recognizing it. Mm. Pretty awesome. But I mean, yeah, that's, a, pretty- that's a small <laughs> hole to punch through in a jet. But yeah. the point is, People going to goof around. You give them some cool stuff and they're good at it. They're going to goof around. <laughs> That's just human nature. So you do have to take that into account. Now, th- here's something to note in this particular story. There's no indication what kind of software Wave actually used. But Quantel, mm-hmm. that I mentioned before, being in its heyday in 1996, having probably just under 1,000 employees most likely, was in Newbury, Berkshire, an hour and 20 minutes west of Bristol, where Wave's post-production shop was. The Henry was taking the post-production world by storm, and it's reasonable to believe that the first ones sold were in close proximity to their corporate headquarters. Alas, technology has moved so fast since then that Quantel completely folded in 2015. I was saddened to hear this when I looked it up today. Bought out, apparently, by one of the oldest post-production companies in the world, the Canadian-based Grass Valley Group. (laughs) Or uh-huh. uh, GVG. Actually, they don't say group anymore. Now it's just Grass Valley. A little bit of trivia. It was a Grass Valley video control switcher that the Death Star used to blow up Alderaan in Star Wars. <laughs> I yeah, the GVG 1000, I believe. Yes, uh, yes. In, in, my, in my edit bay, we had the, the small GVG 100. Yes, that's what we had a, in, yeah. in my television production class. It was, it was right. a lot of fun. You could do all kinds of fun wipes and everything. Well, when it comes to special effects, today we have a lot more power in the palm of our hand than folks had back then in giant machine rooms loaded with computers. So the question here is, is this art imitating reality? I'm not convinced that this guy was paid to make this footage, but man, he did a good job. This is really amazing footage. Also, it's not really discussed in terms of how he might have done the compositing, but based on what I know about compositing, the crop circle that was there, there's no discussion of it not being real. I think it was there. Mm -hmm. And I think what he did was he took a handheld shot of it after it had been formed, and then he brought it into a device similar to the Henry and erased it. And then he tracked in the flowing balls of light, the flying balls of light, and then he made the crop circle reappear. That way he didn't have to track the crop circle into the field himself either. It was already Mm -hmm. there. It was easier to remove it and let it reappear than it would have been to create it from scratch. That's my guess on how that was all put together. But my hat's off to him, even though people still think that's real footage. (laughs) Well, you know who could do this really well is Captain Disillusion. Yes. We love that guy. Yeah, I love that guy. But he, he he uses After Effects. Yes, look for this guy on YouTube, folks. Any kind of footage that you think's a UFO or whatever, he goes up and posts how you can make it. He shows you all the ways he puts it together. Yes, using After Effects, which is a brilliant piece of software. So here's the uh, the point that Scott was making is that these were, it's not just a, an app. It's not just a program. These were $100,000 computer systems. You remember the, the, the Spark, the Flame? Yeah. The Flint? Yeah, Flint. There's a whole line of those. Of yeah. Yes. Uh, these were systems Each one differing by a lot of money. <laughs> Right, right. So it's not like you just sign up for Adobe uh, Creative Cloud and you get uh, After Effects and with a little training from uh, Captain Disillusion, you can start to make your own UFO videos. This was a different time back then. So You'd still have to go out to lunch, though, and wait for things to render. That was the thing, because you would (laughs) build it all together, but it couldn't play it back in real time. 
Yeah. And that's why you paid the big bucks because you were paying for just a giant bank of the fastest processors available so that yeah. the clients could see what had been composited together in a reasonable amount of time. So Indeed. And, and in my world, uh, you for any computer animation and you want to lay that to beta SP tape, it would do it one frame at a time. So that's when you, you set the machine up overnight because it would take eight, nine hours for this thing to build a, an animation sequence. So the point here being, though, is that it was a good time for this kind of fakery because it was not well known. Right. Now your family photos are creepily coming back to life yeah. <laughs> from great-great-grandma. It's just a weird world that we're living in now, and nobody believes anything. Yeah. You have deep fakes. A six-year-old could be making the stuff. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. So what is real? Well, we always come back to this. What's real? is what you see in the field. The crop circles themselves, fake or mysterious, are genuine. They're right there to be studied. And when you have something to be studied, well, that's where science comes in, right, Scott? That's right. <laughs> well, you have something to study. Where these other phenomena, you don't have a, a Bigfoot carcass, you don't have a working UFO. Well, you know, that we know public of. doesn't know that. Might yes. have a piece of one. Harry, Harry Reid is saying that Lockheed may have some pieces of one. Yeah. Uh, that's what he was told. Maybe we're going to find out this summer. We'll see. But this next chapter in our series here, and I've now come to call these chapters because these are really just, uh, I mean, this is a journey. And it's as much about the personalities along the way as it is about the phenomenon. So this next chapter in our series, will hopefully shed some light on the biophysical findings from studies done on crop circle plants. Uh, but you know why we find it fascinating is that it's also a story and, and an archetypal story at that of the kinds of people and organizations that are willing to publicly and often privately explore research into metaphysical or, or paranormal mysteries. Conducting this research and devoting themselves to it are people. And people do their typical human behavior things. They they develop biases. They can get misled with the best of intentions. They can say things that they know aren't exactly the truth or the whole story in order to reinforce their beliefs or positions. Or maybe they're subconsciously not seeing everything they need to. Or maybe they don't honestly remember things accurately as they occurred. And then what happens is that people say things publicly People get into arguments and fights, and sides and camps form. And we've seen it with UFO research, cryptid research, ghost research, you name it. <laughs> well, I think some of the reasons for the eventual contentiousness with those who study these things are the elusive nature of the phenomena and the resulting evidence. The prevailing view that this is all fringe, <laughs> there's a fringe quality to these subjects, and the sometimes eccentric personalities that get involved and are willing to publicly admit their involvement, often to ridicule. Hello. But, but regardless, these are people who feel a strong conviction to enter this field of study, okay? They, they knew this was going to happen, and as we said in part one, this is something that Colin experienced himself. His life turned upside down once you make that leap, that you're going to announce this, like, this is what I'm going to be looking into. All your regular friends and family, even your spouse, is like, okay, that's enough of that. Yeah. We're out of here. It's like you suddenly joined Amway. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe, well, you don't have a garage filled with uh, cleaning products no, that you can't no. sell, yeah. uh, that you have to keep buying to keep up your thing, right? Your multi-level marketing scheme. Yeah. You may just have boxes, bankers' boxes full of evidence. Like, I, I think it was John McDonald. 
you know, Rob K could probably tell us who that was, but I think he had a garage full of stuff. And guess what? That eventually just gets uh, thrown out, disseminated. Yes, that's what the shed. The shed out. with the with the with the Sumpton man evidence gets burned by the uh, by the wife. Yes. It's like oh, I don't need this crap anymore here. I also see it this way. On the other hand, all these arguments, these divisions, personality clashes, differing points of view, they happen with mainstream scientific and academic studies as well. So I guess overall, it's just how people behave. Just want to let everyone know: Yes, we know the Summerton man is being exhumed. We do know that, and we oh, are in yes. touch with Professor Derek Abbott, who quite clearly, when I said, hey, you want to come on the show and talk about this? He was, he was basically like, well, nothing's happened yet. When, once once the, <laughs> we get the results yeah. back, he'll be the first to be in touch. So just want to know, you, yes. we, uh, let everybody know we're still on that, and we will keep you posted. So Indeed. Yes. So what we're going to talk about next is as much a story about people and personalities as it is about the evidence. But we're going to discuss a little bit of science here, perhaps. <laughs> you be the judge at the end of this. So let's take a look now at what some claim has been discovered with authentic crop circle plants themselves. And keep in mind, the evidence, the data, leads to conclusions. But there's a big difference between the two and a long journey from one to the other. What some people have discovered is that there is a change or changes in the crop circle plants themselves. So as of 2003, when the book Crop Circles, Signs of Contact by Colin Andrews was published, these are passages from what I've taken from Colin Andrews' book. And keep in mind, the attitudes expressed here may have changed from that time to the present. Then, eminent biophysicist William C. Levengood was working at Pinelandia Laboratories in Michigan, and he had examined and tested crop circle plants from many different countries for a number of years. And his findings indicated that the authentic crop circle plants had their internal structure changed at the cellular level. The cell pit walls within the plant structure were fractured and expanded, a structural change that was not found in hoaxed circle plants. So here's the deal. Along the stem of cereal grain crop, there are what are called nodes, or what some people call knuckles, as they resemble the knuckles of your fingers. As Colin Andrews explains their function, the nodes in a stalk allow the plant to return to a vertical position if they are somehow placed in the horizontal position during their growth period. They get knocked down, whatever. They're bending points of sorts. The nodes normally expand slightly during growth, and this expansion is a common effect known to farmers all over the world. The nodal expansion found within authentic crop circles is extremely unusual compared to normal nodal expansion in regular crops or inside hoax circles due to a highly increased expansion ratio. So what Dr. William Levengood found, and we'll talk about the doctor part later, was that the largest nodal expansion occurred in the center of a crop circle. It's called it, foreshadowing. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Well, it's an uh, interesting point here because he's referred to as, uh, with that title, in a bunch of different places, but it is a point of contention later on. Well, you've probably seen this, Scott. When you get up close in circles that are thought to be authentic, there's often a standing shaft, a small copse of grain in the very center of the authentic crop circles. I don't think you can right? use cops that way, but okay. A well, cops it's brain. Uh, I, I just wanted to get it in there somewhere, yes. at least in this part three. Actually, that we is gotta part of the- got to keep cops in the zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> that is mentioned quite a bit uh, in some of the interviews that you see in these documentaries is that uh, there will be a ball of light or an actual UFO that took over, jetted over a cops of trees or came out of a cops of trees. So yes. 
tops of trees. We can't get away from it. No. It's a very significant part of this uh, entire paranormal genre. Yes. But in this case, the largest nodal expansion occurred in the center of a crop circle and then to lesser degrees in the outer peripheries of the circles. That's what Levin Good found. There seems to be a profile of enlargement that is proportional to the profile of the genuine crop from which it is taken. In other words, there seems to be a direct connection between the geometries of the master circle, the big circle there, and the dimensions of the nodal expansion. And this is not found in fakes. So the degree of expansion in the nodes, there's a ratio connection between that and the ratio of the, the master circle and the periphery circles or other circles, or as you get further away from the standing center. What is the meaning of this connection? Or is it all connected? Is there a fractal connection we're going to look at? Is there some grand plan? Or is this just really, really genius people designing these things and carrying it out? Well, here's another thing. William C. Levengood also found magnetic material impregnated in some of the plants from real circles, as well as in soil samples around those plants. Now, as of the printing of Andrew's book, this magnetic material had only been found in a small number of meteorites. This brings up the possibility and hypothesis that the making of crop circles may involve energies from outside our planet, and that some high-energy event may have been responsible for impregnating magnetic meteoric material inside the plants. One theory that Levengood puts forth is that microwave radiation could cause many of the expulsion cavities and nodal changes found in crop circle plant stalks. Now, when Levengood was at Pinelandia Labs, and I just keep thinking of Portlandia, of course, I'm not sure a lot of us do, uh, he was, was able to duplicate. Oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> Wait, what was your episode? <laughs> the Brunch Special, 2012. That's it. Look for that. <laughs> or don't. Oh, Tesher, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> come on, look for it. Yeah. I want to see some uh, some great stills of Scott dug up. Yeah. That should be a, a Tess's episode. She's really into brunch. <laughs> That's right. I think the folks in DC, it's a big thing there, brunch. Yes. I, I love yeah. brunch myself. Well, anyway, while Levengood was at Pinelandia Labs, he was able to duplicate some of the nodal changes by exposing normal plants to microwaves. But one change that could not be duplicated by microwave exposure was the genetic changes to the nodes. Right. That has been tracked. There's some possible genetic changes. Uh, there's one photo in the book, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, and it shows changes seen in starch crystals from a normal cross-section of a plant stalk and the increased crystallization found in a crop circle stalk. What I'm getting at here, and keep in mind, is that there is bits of data evidence that has been collected that seem to be accepted. Just keep that in mind. Okay, now before we go on with more findings from Dr. William Levengood, let's take a look at the story of the research team he became associated with during his research years, the BLT Research Team Incorporated. It makes me hungry every time. Every time. Every time. It I'm is one of my favorite sandwiches. <laughs> Still trying to get my son to like the L and the T part. He's into bacon, but... Really? Doesn't like tomatoes? No, he doesn't. Although he eats them in guacamole. He also eats raw fish eggs, so go figure. I can't do uh, that. The salmon egg sushi, I, I can't do that. I love sushi, but I can't do the <laughs> eggs. Yeah, They're buttery delicious. Okay, well, we'll work on that later. <laughs> but in this case, the reason I want to read the history, or maybe I'll have Scott do it here, is that this sets up not only the history of this company that Levengood and another prominent figure, Nancy Talbot, were associated with, and I, I believe still are, the history of this company, plus the findings, are all entwined 
in the lore of crop circles. It's part of the legend, and I think it's worth exploring because, again, as we always say, who cares about a phenomenon if you don't know about the people that are involved with it? If a crop circle is formed and no one is there to see it, does it matter? That's I'm not, I'm not joking. That's no, a serious yeah. question because yeah. the thinking is that they are meant to be seen. The purpose is By to the be way, seen. By the way, that's another thing about art. Art is not art if no one sees it. Yes. What good is the Mona Lisa if it never sees the light of day? If no other person ever looks at it besides the one yeah. who made it, even then. I mean, I would have some self-satisfaction. It's like, look at what I did. This is a Mona yeah, Lisa. Yeah, but that's what's Great. making it art. I guess yeah. in that case, when you <laughs> make that comparison, and I take that again from a documentary we've referenced a few times called This is a Robbery. And I think that's, that's right. Yeah, yes. Somebody in that says, uh, one of the curators, it's like, art's not art if you can't look at it. Or experience it, I should say, because you can feel, I mean, obviously you yeah, can of feel sculptures and stuff like that. So. You're going to get arrested uh, or <laughs> thrown out of the museum. I wouldn't recommend it. There's, an, in fact, an old joke about uh, two little old ladies uh, looking at uh, naked Greek statues, but I won't go into it here. The other thing I've heard about art is half of art is knowing when to stop. So certainly that does not apply to us, and therefore this is not art, what we're doing here. <laughs> I don't know if I'd have brought that we up We don't know when show. to stop. Uh, so you want me to read the BLT history yeah, here? Yeah, why okay. not? So what this is from is they have a website, which is still functioning. I'm not sure when's the last time it's been updated, maybe 2015, 2012. Yeah. There are some social media news bits, and certainly it's died down a little, and we're going to end with a big newsworthy story. But I wanted you to read this because it sums up the history of this company, the involvement of the people, their motivations, who's behind it, and a little bit of the findings. All right, here we go. In December 1990, Michigan biophysicist William C. Levengood contacted Pat Delgado, one of the very early British crop circle investigators, expressing an interest in examining plants taken from crop circles, samples, and comparing them with plants taken elsewhere in the same fields, controls. Mr. Delgado began shipping crop circle plant samples and controls from various British crop formations to Levengood's Michigan laboratory, and almost immediately, Levengood began observing anomalies in the circle plants. The seeds from many of the crop circle plants were visibly smaller than the controls and weighed less. In one case, although the seed head and glooms appeared basically normal externally, when the glooms, the tissue surrounding each seed, were open, they were found to be devoid of seeds altogether. This was a highly unusual finding in a wheat crop planted for commercial harvest. At this early stage of investigation, Levengood pursued various experimental evaluations, some of which were non-productive, others of which began to form the basis of a consistent description of characteristic changes in crop circle plants. He had begun to document abnormal enlargement of the growth nodes in the circle plant stems, and seed germination studies were revealing clear alterations in the normal development of the seedling embryos, indicating interference in the reproductive capacity of the circle plants. It was obvious that something unusual was affecting these crop circle plants. The question, of course, was what? By 1992, John Burke, a New York businessman with a strong avocational interest in geomagnetic and electromagnetic theory, and Nancy Talbot, a music producer with a research background at the University of Maryland and at Harvard College, had both become interested in the crop circle phenomenon and had contacted Levengood about his crop circle research. Excited by the early laboratory results and Levengood's conviction that something highly unusual was taking place in the crop fields, Burke and Talbot were interested in assisting the research effort and an informal collaboration, the BLT, Burke, Levengood, Talbot, research team, began to take shape. By now, crop formations were being reported in countries around the world, and it was apparent that an organized international reporting and field sampling network was needed. Talbot set about creating these networks in order to obtain samples from newly discovered formations. She developed a concise field sampling protocol, 
located and trained new sampling personnel, arranged for the shipping of plants and soils to Levin Goods Michigan Lab, and financed the attendant expenses. Burke worked on the theoretical ideas emerging from Levin Goods laboratory data, spending considerable time in New York City libraries researching the scientific literature. Together, Burke and Talbot carried out various field experiments in the UK and networked with other researchers so as to stay informed of any new developments in the phenomenon. Over the next eight years, a significant number of crop formations, approximately 300, were sampled in seven countries, the US, Canada, England, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, and Israel. Field trips to sample circles and gather on-site data in the UK, Germany, Canada, the Netherlands, and the US were undertaken by Miss Talbot each summer, and dozens of other crop circles were documented and sampled by the growing number of new field workers. Control studies were designed and carried out, and thousands of hours of field office, library, and laboratory work were expended. Laboratory reports on individual cases were written up and mailed out to landowners and farmers around the world, as well as to the field workers involved in each event and to local media. In 1993, a crop formation at Sharehill, England, which had occurred during the annual Perseids meteor shower, had been found with a glaze of very pure iron covering and embedded in some of the downed plants. Following this discovery, regular soil sampling was instituted and carried out on most crop circles studied subsequently. The results of this early work were clear and thought-provoking. There are pervasive, reoccurring abnormalities in crop circle plants and soils as compared to the control plants and soils taken from the same fields and as compared with plants evaluated in the control studies, which are consistent with exposure of these plants and soils to an intense and complex energy system which emits heat, possibly microwaves, along with highly unusual electrical pulses and strong magnetic fields. Of the 300 plus or minus crop formations sampled by the BLT team and examined by Levengood from 1990 through 2000, more than 90% showed the characteristic anomalous changes in somatic, non-reproductive, and or reproductive plant tissues, and magnetic material was consistently documented in those formations where soil sampling had also been conducted. Three research papers were written during this 10-year period and published in peer-reviewed scientific journals establishing in the scientific literature for the first time that the human pranksters with planks and boards theory of crop circle causation was inadequate and that something much more intriguing is going on. The BLT team has never been able, financially or logistically, to sample every formation reported in every country around the world each summer and therefore cannot extrapolate precise figures regarding this man-made slash real debate. Our work is, however, the most comprehensive to date, our choice of formations to be studied purposely random within each country, and we have utilized hundreds of different field workers, a majority of whom were totally unacquainted with each other and often equally unaware of lab results previously obtained. These facts strongly argue against bias on the part of the field teams, as does the fact that 90 plus percent of the formations evaluated in the lab, regardless of country or field personnel involved, reveal the same plant soil abnormalities we now associate with the real phenomenon. The fact that the various testing procedures have shown high correlation with each other helps rule out experimenter bias, and the control studies have clearly established the fact that manually downed crop using planks and boards, human feet, and a cement roller does not exhibit the physical changes observed in crop circle plants over the years. It seems probable, then, that the overall number of man-made crop circles is relatively small compared to the total number of circles discovered and reported each year. It should also be emphasized that our contact with landowners and farmers indicates that many crop circles go unreported each year, either because they occur in very remote areas and are never discovered at all, crop circles occur in all kinds of plants, not just cereal crops, 
or they are found at harvest by farmers who are either uninterested in reporting them or unaware of the reporting network. Furthermore, farmers whose land has been farmed by generations of the same family regularly report that previous generations did occasionally report the discovery of crop circles while harvesting. In 1999, an opportunity to carry out some new research presented itself when New York philanthropist Lawrence S. Rockefeller offered funding. In order to meet Mr. Rockefeller's requirements, Ms. Talbot sought and was granted nonprofit tax exempt status, and BLT Research Team Incorporated was created with Ms. Talbot as president. For several years, Ms. Talbot had been encouraging the interest of several scientists with differing expertise in the crop circle situation, and it was through one of these, Utah geologist Diane Conrad, that a new investigatory approach to the phenomenon was instituted. In 1996, Ms. Conrad, then a resident in Utah, had carried out X-ray diffraction analysis on soil samples retrieved from a crop circle in Providence, Utah. Her very preliminary examination seemed to indicate that an in-depth XRD evaluation of crop circle soils might be productive. That's X-ray diffraction. And this project was subsequently carried out with the Rockefeller funding. A new scientific paper presenting the results of this study is in progress and will be published, we expect, in 2002. Slowly, as new scientists learn of the research results obtained so far and begin to recognize some of the implications, the BLT Research Team Incorporated is adding to its lists of consultants. Although the media has made this progress more difficult by labeling the crop circle phenomenon as fringe, hard data obtained through rigorous scientific methodology is difficult to ignore. As one prominent consultant recently replied when asked if he was concerned about possible skepticism from his peers, quote, the data is the data, end quote. And following such data, wherever it leads, will most likely lead us eventually to an understanding of this most enigmatic, peculiar phenomenon. Well, that was uh, long, but I think it, it outlines it their position. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, I need to take a break. Actually, I went and got a, a BLT. I hadn't read that, and it was good to yeah. see because I have a lot of other ancillary background information on BLT and as it relates to Colin Andrews. And yes. it's interesting to read that portion of that because I still have questions about the scientific research in light of conclusions that other researchers have drawn about the high prevalence of hoaxing. I don't understand okay. how these findings jibe with that, because if they're saying 90% of where their yeah. samples are showing real circles, there's other researchers who are almost diametrically opposed to that figure. Not to give anything away, this is all very contentious, though. That's why, Yes. well, people should know if you're interested in the phenomenon, that uh, there is some uh, disagreement, major disagreements going on, and uh, finger pointing and this and that or whatever, but... Before we get back to the summary of the findings as laid out in Colin Andrews' book, we have to keep in mind that there has been some criticism of Levin Good's reports, and we're going to touch on that later. So I think the anomalies perhaps stand on their own. And that's a theme I'm going to be driving at, us and the listeners, all of us together, towards an understanding of data versus conclusions. But I believe there are definitely other pieces of evidence and clues that we can find within the stocks, which may speak for themselves, but how do we tie this all together? Well, there are other anomalies included with this strangeness, like the seed heads uh, collected from crop circle plants were malformed, but surprisingly manifested speeded up germination. Rapid widespread heating of the nodes is found in authentic formations that don't appear to be altered by humans. So... I'm going to take some comments here from okay. Nancy Talbot herself within the documentary 
But here are a few other things that uh, go along with the research. Sometime prior to 2003, the Center for Crop Circle Studies, the CCCS, commissioned a research project to measure radiation found in some authentic circles, and some unusual radioactive isotopes were found in a number of circles. The results were analyzed by a U.S. government lab, after which the findings were made public, and the prevailing opinion at the time was that the findings were very unusual and it all warranted further research. But then a curious development occurred a few days after the announcement of the findings. The government laboratory where the analysis was conducted suddenly backtracked and said that they had discovered contamination in the lab and that the results on the isotopic readings were due to a lingering contamination from a previous experiment. The analysis was not repeated, with the lab claiming that the conclusions were incorrect due to contamination. So that's the end of that story. We're uh, just forget everything that we said about the isotopes being strange. Yes. Colin Andrews mentions that he's been uh, carrying a Geiger counter into crop circles for many years and has yet to discover anything truly unusual. So seems to be some squashing of uh, reports or just contamination. That does happen at labs. And you have to throw out the data. And Colin did say that, and other researchers have too. I read in numerous places that nobody's been able to connect radiation right. to any crop circles in all the decades right. of research, really, beyond this right. one instance. So that makes sense. I mean, contamination happens. This happens at It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, you could look at it one way or the other. And uh, all we can say here is uh, results inconclusive. Yes. Well... Scott, you might be wondering, what happens to the crops in the crop circles? Do they get used in any special way? I know the farmers just want to harvest them and sell them, right? That's like they always do. Yeah, like they're just, yeah, they're going to scoop it up. That's the yeah. point, too, is that if they're bent naturally, they can still be salvaged if they're too damaged by people tromping on them and fake uh, methodologies, either the hoaxing or too many tourists tromping on them they are damaged beyond use. So if they're not, though, guess what? You can make bread and beer. And people have made both from crop circle cereal grains from authentic, you know, what are believed to be authentic crop circles. And Colin believes that the plants from these circles are certainly healthier and more vibrant than the ordinary plants. They're larger and they have better coloration and formation. And uh, didn't we mention before in part one or two that uh, the ancients perhaps especially harvested these grains, believing them to be magical within the crop circles that they thought were authentic. They may have favored the grains found in these authentic crop circles. No, uh, I didn't read that anywhere. Ancient peoples. Yeah, okay. I, I, there was some blurb. I can't remember who. Oh, yeah. Don't hold me to the quote, but that is one belief is that throughout the ages, the grains found in these authentic circles. Oh, uh, well, they certainly didn't think people yeah. back in the day were faking these for some... Uh, internet fame, yeah, certainly, yeah. that these things appeared for whatever reason, and people thought this was blessed crop. There was a more robust growth. It was healthier. It was prized. Well, now I'm going to get to a summary of the anomalous findings here regarding positive effects on crops. Dr. Levengood found crop circle plants can grow up to 40% larger than ordinary plants, and their root structure is 40% stronger, and their grain is markedly healthier. I'm not sure how you measure that. Maybe more bran, more nutrients. Well, Nancy Talbot explains further and in better detail about these findings because they are a little bit maybe esoteric or hard to grasp once we've just read them and you're 
probably doing some other project around the house and not listening that carefully. So we're going to bore you with the... Or trying to fall asleep, in which case you're... This is score. This is the point. If you're just oh, they're now gone by off, now. Yeah. You're, you're in. Oh, yeah. no, no. They started uh, when I was talking about the... Uh, when I, I was just reading the entire transcript from the other documentary. Well, I'm going to start to do that a little bit here. So if you've just woken up and you can't get back to sleep, do not fear. Here's part two. Well, these comments come from Nancy Talbot herself. She's in the documentary Crop Circle's Quest for Truth in quite a lot of segments, but what's good about it is that she's got samples she shows you. So they do have pieces of data that she can show you and then explains what's going on with them. Well, I believe we mentioned this analysis for the ground locations and conditions where crop circles are found, but since it was so long ago, I think we should probably give a, a reminder to everyone what Nancy Talbot explained during her appearance in the documentary Crop Circle's Quest for Truth. This is also fascinating. So I, I went back and I, I took some notes and, and uh, jotted down exactly what she said because Colin Andrews also believes this, that there's a water connection to where they're found. So regarding the possible reason why uh, authentic crop circles are found where they are, Nancy Talbot says in the documentary that it's something like 93 to 98% of the formations that do in fact occur at least in Southern England, do form over a chalk and green sand aquifer. As the summer comes on and, and there's less rain and then the aquifer recedes, as it does, it sinks down lower. As the edges of the aquifer recedes, you get a strong electric charge set up in the ground because the water percolating through the chalk creates this charge. As the summer goes along, this charge increases. The lower the aquifer is, the farther the water has to travel through the chalk and the greater the electrical charge. The number of crop circles cluster along the edges of the aquifer also. So then the question comes up all the time is, why don't they occur everywhere? Well, they don't know yet, she says. Uh, but one possible answer is that it needs underground water, that they occur close to water and electrical charges and underground water is one of the reasons they show up where they do. So then in her interview, uh, she goes on to talk about how Levin Good got hooked up with Pat Delgado. Uh, Levin Good was at the University of Michigan as a research scientist. By the late 90s, they had studied at least 350 to 400 crop circle samples from all over the world, as they said in their little uh, history on their website here. But what Levin Good documented were basic changes in the plants. And in his opinion, this was not caused by fungus, pesticides, unusual fertilizer application or weather or wind damage. It was caused by something else. So Nancy Talbot goes on to explain also, remember Burke, the New York financier who is interested yes. in the subject and Levengood, where's their position on this? And what she says is, as far as she knows, uh, at least to the point when the doc was filmed, they're pretty much committed to the idea that there's a causative agency, which is something like ionospheric plasma. And I believe Dr. Terrence Meaden also believed this. This is a plasma vortex coming down. And it's unusual, very rare, but it happens and it's causing some of these plant circles. This would be a plasma that's generated in the ionosphere. And again, this is Levin Good. That's kind of where his mind sets at as to the cause of these authentic circles. What happens then is it descends to Earth's surface, goes to certain locations for whatever reason. There's an aquifer connection, and then there's uh, things like magnetic anomalies. And what happens between all of this is that these crop circles are a result of this combination of various forces. The design impact, however, is the thing that causes the most trouble for people with that explanation. Yeah. 
for me included. It also feels like they're throwing the kitchen sink at this. I mean, it's a lot of high concept ideas scientifically. Right, I mean, right. and, you know, when I say high concept, that's the Hollywood term when your movie's too complicated. But like this stuff is like, <laughs> there's a lot going on. It was, was it coming from up above or down below? It's the, well, the water's right. making it, but now it's coming from the ionosphere. And then what about the patterns? I mean, Obviously, we know some of them are hoaxes, but yes, it's a little bit kitchen sinky to me, but hey, I'll keep well, going. I'm, I'm, I'm still with you, Forrest. Okay, good. Yes. I mean, yeah. here's the thing to keep in mind, because again, this points to philosophy and yeah. point of view and bias and subjectivity versus objectivity in that if you're a scientist, if you're a meteorologist, a biophysicist, it's less likely these are... Gaia, Mother Earth intelligences coming to tell us a message, it's more likely it's going to be a very rare but explainable phenomena associated with weather or atmosphere. There's a reason these are happening. Snowflakes occur in nature, and every single one of them is a beautiful, symmetrical work of art, and all of them are different. So, right, and that's what Nancy yeah. Talbot's saying. So, I mean, look yeah. at the head of a sunflower plant, seashells, snowflakes. Nature creates incredibly intricate designs that are beautiful. But do you see the variety that we're seeing here with authentic crop circles? Well, she goes on to say, you know, the major point for people who don't know anything about crop circles is then not to jump to the conclusion that just because you've never seen anything like this before, it's got to be supernatural. And she says, I don't know, it might be supernatural. I don't know for sure. But you got to look at the obvious first. So at least she's trying to be, I, I think, taking the scientific approach where let's see what we got here in front of us first instead of jumping to conclusions which are woo-woo. And then she goes on to make the point. It's like, look, stuff that was considered supernatural in the past, years ago, and in, uh, in Odin times, were now known as, it's not that magical. It's just very rare. And uh, again, we go to ball lightning, St. Elmo's fire. Could be a demon back then. Now it's like, we kind of know what it is. Well, what Nancy Talbot goes on to say is that Levin Good documented, and she thinks did a really good job and tediously for many, many years with the basic changes in the plants and, and also the discovery of magnetic particles in the soil that are very unusual. So one thing that he discovered uh, was that the seeds taken from crop circle plants grew totally differently than the controls. So what Levin Good did was take these seeds and he used a germination chamber, which is calibrated to certain temperature, amount of moisture, whatever gets the plants to seed. Nancy Talbot says, quote, if the crop was young and immature, the seed was not fully formed when the crop circle occurred. The seedling was depressed, the seedling's energies, that is. Often, they wouldn't germinate. And if they did germinate, not strongly enough to be viable. However, in mature crop, where the seed was already formed when the energies hit, then you got exactly the opposite. You got increased growth and yield. So that's interesting. It depends on when this thing was formed, what happens to the seed. It's either stunted and not viable, or if it's mature, boom, it's got uh, boosted growth. So germination is about four days, and uh, what they're looking at at the beginning here is does it germinate or not? That's the first step. And once that's happened, then he starts measuring, Levin Good, the, the root and shoot development for about 14 days because he wants to see what happens subsequent to germination. So Nancy then points out a case in Maryland where elongated nodes occurred. This was interesting because there's a picture of it. Swaths were cut through the crop. There are nodes that are bent left to right. So as at the beginning of this explanation, as Colin Andrews said, the nodes are natural formations. In this case with a the circle, they're going left and right. So it's not like, well, I guess if you faked it, you could be bending them, but it would take a lot of time to make them go in various directions. 
Node bending, however, is a natural response of the plant. If it's young and growing and it gets knocked down and it's not killed, what happens is that it tries to reorient itself according to gravity, and that's called gravitropism. If it tries to reorient itself according to light, that's called phototropism. You know what I'm saying? Like you've done this probably in school where you turn the ceiling upside down and it finds its way up to yes, the surface. Yes, it happens to me too if I've had too much to drink in the next morning. <laughs> you I'm, will try. to get phototropic. Right. You don't <laughs> d dig further down into the couch where you had to sleep. Uh, yeah, So right. it's not to disturb get your a, family. You get you up and get up. three yes. books. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> Well, here's the deal. If you go into a crop circle, the nodes are bent, and you don't know when that crop circle occurred, and you don't know the age of the crop at the time, you don't really know whether the node is bent because of natural means, like phototropism or gravitropism. But if you get there quickly enough, and you know that the circle just happened, and then you find this massive node bending at these 90-degree angles, then you can tell that this is part of the phenomenon. This phenomenon bent the nodes. So Talbot goes on to explain... What Levengood says is going on is that the moisture, and I remember that the plant stem is hollow here, and the nutrients, you know, the, the moisture which nourishes the plant goes up through the stem. So a fact about plasmas, and this is his big thing, he's about plasma. Now keep this in mind, these are her words, and uh, we may get some letters from uh, actual scientists. But a fact about plasmas, she says, is that they emit microwaves and bursts in pulses. And his idea, Levin Goods, is that microwaves from these pulses are connecting with the moisture inside the plant stem, just like they would in your microwave oven, heating up the plant, which then softens it and allows it to fall. So we talked about earlier how these things bend the, the stalks. The moisture inside turns to steam, and as it does so, it has to escape. Well, if the plants are young and pliable, and I think the outer fibers are pliable, the steam escapes by stretching the nodes. And that's how you get the elongated nodes. If the energy is extremely intense and or if the crop is old and the fibers are tough, then it can't get out because the fibers won't stretch or there's too much energy, then it blows a hole right out the node. And those are what are called exploded nodes or as uh, the director, William Gazeki calls them blown nodes or as I think it's more uh, scientific, expulsion cavities. And these can be seen in the blown nodes. So she's got examples of this where you see the knuckles of these plants and there's splits in them. Yes. So what's going on here is that what Levin Good believes is that some energy, perhaps plasma or microwave in bursts, are heating up the moisture in these nodes, which causes the plant to bend over at these crazy 90 degree angles in a certain direction. And the node will just stretch if the plant is young. If the plant is old, the steam, like popcorn, pops out the side of the node, and then you get these exploded nodes with expulsion cavities, and they have samples of these. Now, what I will say here as an aside is that I've seen stems in these documentaries that are bent at 90 degrees in a gentle bend, not a broken bend, but not seemingly anywhere near the node or between nodes. So uh, there's a bunch of weird stuff going on, but this is one interesting theory. So then uh, Nancy Talbot shows uh, director William Gazeki of the doc. She shows him some corn stalk samples with blown nodes and says, you know, to knock over a corn stalk, those are thick. It must have taken quite a bit of energy to knock over full grown corn stalks. So then she goes on to talk a little bit about how they do the sampling is that uh, they don't just take a stalk here and there. They take hundreds of plants from a circle, could be 50, 60, 70 samples each and each of these samples will have 10 to 20 plants in them. And then they take some control samples, starting immediately outside the circle, and then they go about 500 to 1,000 feet away in various directions, several directions. 
And then the idea is that you compare what you see outside the circle with the plants you got from the inside the circle. So here is, uh, I believe they talk in their history, she goes on to describe a case from 1997 in Salem, Oregon, where they found node length changes in the plants in the formation and a massive incidence of expulsion cavities. And what they discovered was that they had a significant node length change inside the formation with expulsion cavities. But what they also found in the standing crop outside the formation, the supposedly unaffected crop, they found node length changes which decreased as a function of distance away from the edge and in a completely linear fashion. So what she's saying here is that when you take samples north and south, there's still node length changes outside the circle that decreases the further you get away from it in the standing crop, which is supposed to be unaffected. So then if you say that these are man-made events, how are people able to do this? They have some kind of black ops equipment that is knocking these stocks down and you're getting some overspray here with node length. So that's an interesting principle. Something else she talks about, which I see brought up in the crop circle literature, is the Beer-Lambert principle or equation. The Beer-Lambert law, also known as Beer's law, the Lambert-Beer law, or the Beer-Lambert-Bouger law, relates to the attenuation of light to the properties of the material through which light is traveling. I believe it has something to do with old-timey folks looking at wine and the light filtering through the wine to determine some kind of quality. Well, Nancy Talbot simply describes it as the precise way in which matter, uh, any matter, absorbs electromagnetic energy. Well, if you're using node length changes as the equivalent to exposure to the energy, then as that decreases, when it does so in a linear fashion, it means that what caused the energy has to be electromagnetic energy. And she applies that uh, with the Beer-Lambert principle. So what you're seeing here in a linear fashion, how these crop circles are affected with node expansion, all this stuff points to a calculable electromagnetic energy. So it's not happenstance. Something is happening here, which is a lot of energy applied in this manner by some force. And then uh, William Gazeki asks her, like, well, why didn't these standing crops fall down if they're affected? You know what I'm saying? If there's node expansion in them. It's like, well, right. her explanation is like, this is a very complex energy system. So whatever is going on, you got many energies working at once. There's obviously a strong magnetic field as well as the electrical component there. And there may be energies that we don't know about scientifically yet. Something's happening here to cause this. So uh, she says it's a thermodynamically unstable situation, which means you can't predict precisely what's going to operate what in what manner. And she says, well, there could be many other factors, geographical, the type of crop, the age of the crop at the time it occurs. All these things are probably factors. So here's another thing is that it's often talked about uh, magnetic particles in the soil. What they discovered are tiny black spherical particles. And here's the point that we'll talk about later as far as the science goes. Nancy Talbot and Levengood, I believe, they're thinking because these things are spherical that they were in a molten state as they fell to earth because that's how you get the spheres. She says, remember the shot tower, you heard of that? For muzzle-loading guns, they used to pour molten lead through a copper grating or a copper sleeve with holes in it. As the lead drops, they form spherical balls, which then fall into a cold water bath to cool them. Oh, that's how you make those? Well, that's how you make them in bulk. Uh, oh, there's okay. small things. If you watched uh, Mel Gibson, I think is in The Patriot, where he's got a small ball uh, a shot maker where you, he's melting down his son's uh, yeah. toy soldiers. yeah. 
that's what at a time it's very time consuming, but uh, he didn't have a, you know, then the shot tower was developed. So okay. that's how you make a lot of lead shot. If they come down, no, here's the thing. They're not all perfectly round. Some that are misshapen are just remelted. And right. then they would take a, a flat surface, roll the good ones down and kind of determine uh, which ones were not suitable at that point. Good Lord. These things are huge. This is like six, seven stories tall. Yeah. I think okay. uh, that's how you get the, uh, probably the, you, know, the you see the little animation. Ones, so. You're like, oh, it's a cute little vase. And it's like, no, this is a building. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. You, you asked this earlier and I'm still thinking about this. Where does this phenomenon come from? From the sky? From under the ground? Right. From another dimension? Because if you look at the microscopic balls of magnetic material, these are usually found around the edges of the circle here. Now, there's a graph in the documentary, and it seems that the balls are in greater number, milligrams and grams, as opposed to soil, as they're found here. As you move out from the epicenter gradually, it goes in a linear fashion. It's pretty much a straight diagonal line of the bulk increasing, as far as I could read the graph. It's been a long time since I was in school. <laughs> Talbot says, this is a display of a force or energy at work. How could hoaxers, if you were just throwing a handfuls of these tiny little you know, the pebbles of magnetic material just to throw people off. How are you doing that in a gradual fashion? That's the data that they found. So Nancy Talbot says only in the last year with the accumulation of a number of experiences that she's gotten, she's at the point where she can't personally think that uh, this phenomenon is not without some kind of consciousness involved. So this is a nice little uh, end here to her, her statements is that she's been seeing weird stuff. It just rocks your preconceived notions that this is perhaps just an unknowing, uncaring natural phenomenon that maybe there's a force here. This is the trend that Scott and I have seen is that people are thinking differently about this, that there is consciousness perhaps involved. And she says, I, I don't know if this is my consciousness, <laughs> the collective unconscious of Jung or the consciousness of Quanta. She just does not know, but there's something going on here. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Jim Murphy. Now back to the show. This can't be all rosy and interesting. There has to be some controversy here, and there is. And it's criticism of Levengood and his methodologies, mostly accusations that he didn't conduct all of his research using a double-blind methodology. Right, so... This is a little bit complicated. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on it, but there mm -hmm. there was a controversy that related to a run-in a little bit with Colin Andrews and Nancy Talbot, but doesn't even seem like it was rooted in something that Colin actually did, although she made connections to him. It was mm -hmm. rooted in something that her field collectors did who were collecting samples in an effort to, I guess, check on Dr. Levengood's results by sending him known fake crops and right. checking the results. And this blew up into a whole thing. It was played out on coast to coast. It was complicated and there was a bit of, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it didn't <laughs> go well between Nancy Talbot and Colin Andrews. And right. I feel like one of the things that Colin said pretty plainly was that you should be able to do what's called a double blind study. And that Dr. Levengood, who also, by the way, was did not actually have a doctorate or a PhD. He had a master's degree that was his highest level of education. So there's a little bit of a thing there. But the other thing about Mr. Levengood's work was that he should have been receiving the samples 
at least single blind, where he did not know what was inside the circle or outside the circle when the stocks came right. to him. Now, a right. double blind study is one in which neither the participants nor the experimenters, I'm reading this from verywellmind.com, know who is receiving a particular treatment. And this is referring to a drug test, but just imagine crop samples instead. This procedure is utilized to prevent bias in research results. Double-blind studies are particularly useful for preventing bias due to demand characteristics or the placebo effect. Again, that applies to medication. But uh, listen to this. For example, let's imagine that researchers are investigating the effects of a new drug. In a double-blind study, the researchers who interact with the participants would not know who was receiving the actual drug and who was receiving a placebo. This can be contrasted with a single-blind study in which the experimenters are aware of which participants are receiving the treatment while the participants remain unaware. So the theory is that psychologically, in some kind of way, unless you have the ultimate poker face, you might be leading scientists or you might be leading, in this case, the people who are taking the medicine or, or treating them uh, in some kind of way that is skewing the results. So if we go and look at this altercation that went down, what happens is Nancy Talbot goes on to Coast to Coast and talks to George Knapp of Skinwalker Ranch fame. Yeah, I remember him. Um, right, right. Among many other things that he's covered. So in this appearance with George Knapp on Coast to Coast, this actually happened in, I guess, January of 2015, and Colin makes reference to it on his website. Mm -hmm. there's some statements that were made here by Talbot that he takes issue with. And in the statement that he published, he talks about a good number of the things that were bothering him. I'm just going to go over a couple of them really quick. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, the following address, some of the mini accuracies of the portion of Talbot's Coast to Coast AM interview on January 17th, 2015, that specifically related to the blind testing of Mr. Levengood's plant analysis. And then he provides a link to all documentation that supports this, which he has held on to it. Shelley Keel and James Withers collected plant samples from crop circles for BLT and WC Levengood for a number of years as part of the ongoing BLT team. They are not related to me, Colin Andrews, or are in any way part of my family, which I guess Talbot said that they were. They were part of my original site team and helped me measure circles, sample plants, and more. Talbot first met Shelley and James in the early 90s as part of my team. As a result of their extensive field experience and excellent work, I recommended them to Talbot for the job of collecting samples for Levengood. She certainly did know at the time that they had previously worked for me and were not relatives. And he goes on to talk about double-blind testing. He says, scientific right. relevance requires blind or double-blind testing, which Levengood was adamantly opposed to in regards to his research into crop circles. When serious doubts emerged in the minds of Talbot's collecting team as to the legitimacy of Levengood's results, this experiment was devised. The intent was to blind test Levengood's analysis of crop circles by submitting samples from an area of plant lodging or wind damage and a man-made circle. To ease the minds of those who think this unethical, Levengood himself blind tested others working with him, as can be seen in this letter he sent to Pat Delgado in 1991, and he has a link mm -hmm. of that. So the rest of this details how they went about gathering these uh, samples, uh, but it right. wasn't necessarily related to Colin, which is the point here. And this went back and forth for quite some time, but we felt like we needed to point it out. And it, for me personally, in studying all of this and having seen the documentaries and everybody involved, you know, nobody's perfect. Everyone's got varying points of view and we're dealing with uh, varying levels of scientific knowledge and it's hard to figure out how to approach this. But for me, this does somewhat call into question Levin Goods results, which you just went through, that are highly detailed and have a lot of really seriously kind of mind-numbing information about what has been found in these circles. 
And it's a hard thing to reconcile. I guess uh, Keel, the two people that had gathered the samples, after this happened, they no longer were interested in collecting samples. That's what I read anyway, allegedly for Levengood moving forward after this test, because what happened is when they sent the blind samples from the man-made one and the one damaged by wind was he came back with results that said these are exhibiting all the properties of a classic crop circle. Yes, that and uh, from what I read, as far as I believe it's Shelley Keel's statement on this. Yes, and no relation uh, to John that we know of. <laughs> I do not believe so, no. Well, they didn't get many reports coming back. They did a lot of work for BLT. They got very little feedback. And what they did it started to cause them to doubt the veracity or at least the results of what was being sent in by them in these various samples. So then I think they decided like, you should be double blind testing everything. That's proper scientific methodology. Because here's what's going on essentially then, which should not be happening for scientific relevancy and accuracy is that Levengood knows he's getting a sample that says authentic crop circle crops and a package that says man-made crop circle crops. So he already knows what to expect from each one. He should not know that. He should just get samples that are marked with numbers, test them, see what's different, and says, you know, sample four is different from sample seven because of this, not knowing anything about it. Because what's happening here is that he's infusing the studies with bias. And I believe that is what Shelley Keel and James Weather started to feel yes. like from you the information that so they got better than I did. We, we yeah, just, just, well, <laughs> just the fact that uh, they started to like, I don't know if this guy is uh, being that objective. He should be objective. So they started sending him little uh, bits of uh, crop circles that were not authentic, let's say, from areas of the field that they had crushed down or had taken that were windblown. And they were getting back uh, answers from him like, oh my gosh, this is all the same mystic energies that are happening with this plasma vortex effect, this and that, this is authentic. And they're like, no, not really. So that's when Colin Andrews steps in and says, well, let's formally do a double blind test. Let's document it on tape and film. And they showed exactly how they did that. And that was brought into question by Nancy Talbot on the Coast to Coast episode here. So in rebuttal, that's when Colin Andrews comes back and says, well, look, let me clear up some uh, few things that she brought up that uh, people should know about. And then the other one is, he has, I believe in the past, referred to Levengood as Dr. Levengood. Turns out later that he signed his name that way on some of his reports as Dr. Levengood, but did not actually have a doctorate. As Colin Andrews himself states in his book before, this is 2003, so way before this flap happened, Levengood has written over 50 peer-reviewed papers he vouches, uh, Colin Andrews does, for his research protocol and his high standards of control, monitoring, and recording. Levengood also holds five patents. So he had to go from defending him then to maybe not as much or vigorously, or at least saying that with Levengood's results, we should question them. So before we move on to the more metaphysical and interesting aspects for me anyway about crop circles in what you find when you look at them, when you and I can look at them, even online, this is my thinking on this whole fracas, is that there's a difference between the data and the evidence collected, which should stand on its own if it was collected with decent protocols in place, and a difference between that 
and the conclusions or the implications of that data. I always think back to what Russell Targ said about remote viewing in PSI, PSI. They did really strict controls with the data they gathered at the Stanford Research Institute. And other scientists, their peers, didn't have a problem with the data. They had a problem with the implications of the data, of what was suggested by their data. And I see it this way here. If you can show proof that there are blown nodes, which are not common, why is that happening? If you can show little spherules in the soil, which look like small black magnetic particles that you've tested and they have magnetic properties and are evenly distributed within an authentic circle, that alone is something that should be studied. But to make the leap that, oh, it's caused by plasma vortexes or this and that, it's like, okay, that you have to take another look at because of the bias and the preconceived notions, perhaps, of the researchers. You know, you also have to wonder, at least I do, that if the controls were accurately measured, maybe all crops have these. It's kind of like that thing when you go to the doctor mm -hmm. and you get all kinds of stuff checked out, you know what, they're going to find something. It's all stuff that you weren't yeah. checking out, but now you're checking it all out, you're going to find something. Y you right. don't know. So my question with Levengood is how can we know for sure that all the crops didn't have some of these conditions present, and it's just the first time somebody's looking at them. Like, how can we trust the controls? That's what right. I'm wondering. Right. In light of that blind experiment that led right. to the inaccurate representation, I want to read this one letter that that's actually on Collins' website from George Bishop, the former chairman of the Center for Crop Circle Studies, who you brought up a few minutes ago, also the longest serving editor of its magazine, The Circular. He speaks out about this particular encounter or dust up between Colin Andrews and BLT and uh, Nancy Talbot more specifically. This article is in response to a recent claim and counterclaim on the internet. The first part is an excerpt from a page on Facebook, but relates to BLT's published material available elsewhere on the net. I also refer to recent news that a conference has been called off because some people took exception to another presenter. BLT's Nancy Talbot responds to questions about published papers by Report a Crop Circle Formation on Thursday, August 12th, 2010 at 11.02 p.m. Quote, and if some of the lay people involved in the crop circle situation are themselves raising questions about the scientific work, such questions are basically insignificant. Precisely because these lay people do not have the academic or scientific training needed to correctly understand what the published material actually says, end quote. Before everyone gets too excited, and again, this is George Bishop's writing, that sounds very informal, it's not me saying this. Before everyone gets too excited, I am merely using BLT statements as an indication of the type of problems we encounter when we delve into the crop circle mystery. BLT are no better and no worse than a number of similar organizations. Many of them are not much more scientific than the people they despise. They hanker to get their name in print and to become the latest and foremost guru to welcome the adulation of their fans. Presumably, these fans are a better grade of insignificant than the rest of us. And uh, he's got insignificant in quotations. The paragraph I clipped, however, does give an indication of the manner in which so-called scientists view the lay public. They depend upon us for information, photographs, etc., and the general reporting of observations in the field, and then dismiss us as insignificant. They suggest we do not have the intelligence to correctly understand what the published material actually says. Is this a neat smokescreen to cover up their inaccuracies as typos, perhaps? If we are not intelligent enough to know what we are reading, then why present it for us to read in the first place? Why charge us money for publications that we are unable to interpret? Are they dependent upon our donations and adulation, but do not want us to trample on their field of expertise or to question their authority? 
If the insignificant Wright brothers had followed that formula along with the insignificant Watt and Stevenson, would we be still spending two or three months crossing the Atlantic? Do I detect a whiff of elitism in their statements? It's clear that Nancy Talbot has made him very angry. Colin mm. Andrews believes that 80% of crop circles are man-made. There's some I don't believe we pointed out yet, but we're going to get to. He has no 100% empirical evidence, but relies on his observational skills and the information supplied by others. His data could be tested by other researchers at any time. However, it seems that not all researchers want to accept that there are any hoaxed formations at all. They are no better informed than Colin. In fact, and he's got this in all caps, I would go so far as to say that they are far less well-informed. I believe his figures are conservative. I believe that there is a genuine phenomenon, but most of the genuine incidences are masked by the photogenic activities of the hoaxer. Some complex formations date back to the historic past, but there is little doubt that there has been a steady progression of complicated formations over the last 30 years. Some styles of formations seem to have almost tribal characteristics and common themes of development that can be followed in a steady progression over decades. Having said that, there are some formations that seem to represent one-offs that stand out starkly from the more common themes, the Mandelbrot, the Milk Hill script, Oliver's Castle, and so on. Is there also an air of desperation in their elitist behavior? After all, it is in their own interest that the phenomenon is seen to be genuine. What guru, having declared that all circles are the gift of God, can do anything other than couple that to the statement that all hoaxers are liars? Once they admit that some circles are hoaxed, the inevitable next question is, how many? One or two? A few? Some? It's a slippery slope towards all. Purveyors of photographs, CDs, books, conferences, and seminars have an interest in perpetuating the veracity of crop circles. I think we all agree that there is a genuine phenomenon, and whether we believe it is a craze started by two geriatric con men or not, there is always that nagging doubt. What inspired them to hoax crop circles in the first place? They claim it was UFO nests in Australia, which raises the question of whether there were an Australian duo playing the same game. Even if there were, who were they emulating? Those of us who believe have a valuable part to play in the discovery and reporting of formations in our own areas. If some people would like to believe we are insignificant or not, they would be lost without our very important input. I suspect they already know that. The distraction seems more to do with discrediting anyone who claims that some formations are hoaxed. Some years ago in Andover, Matthew Williams, a gentleman that I'll be talking about later, came to me at a CCCS conference on crop circles. And again, that's the Center for Crop Circle Studies that Bishop is the former chairman of. Andrews asked to be allowed to address the audience. When news got around, some of the presenters and stallholders came to me and stated that if he spoke, they would withdraw their presentations and stalls from the conference. By the way, Andrews is a noted crop circle hoaxer. What on earth were they afraid of? If all hoaxers are liars, he would make a fool of himself. If what he claims is true, then surely it makes scientific sense to hear him out and then test the veracity of his statements. Or doesn't scientific testing apply to such a scenario? At another CCCS conference, I was seen to talk in public to a member of Team Satan. Horror of horrors. Once I moved away, I was accosted by a presenter and stallholder demanding to know what we had been discussing. When I told him that I had been sounding him out about making a presentation, I was warned off in no uncertain terms. Now Colin Andrews has had a similar event happen to him prior to a conference. Just what are the contesters to his presence afraid of? Could it possibly be that they are so afraid of the truth that they will go to such extraordinary lengths in order to suppress it? 
Recently, I have questioned the belief of a prominent purveyor of crop circle-related material. Some time ago, I questioned the claims of Nancy Talbot about crystal clay changes in a Canadian crop circle. Needless to say, both helpful queries ended in vituperative blasts from them and not a mention in print of my points of view. In fact, I got the idea I was being censored and sidelined as an inconvenience. Silly me. Are we insignificant people questioning the claims of all sides in the field, such a challenge to the industry that has grown up around the crop circle phenomenon that we shake the very pillars of the temples and ivory towers they are constructing? Are they so afraid of the open-minded researcher? What if we insignificant people are right? What will they do then? One thing I don't expect to see is an apology. Incidentally, when a similar situation arose in an archaeological tome and my insignificant suggestions were poo-pooed by the authorities, I got a very handsome and fulsome apology in the reprint. George Bishop. Underneath it, it says this case is closed, which I think Colin probably put on the website there. I want to add that we have been in touch with Colin Andrews, and he is not at a point now where he's giving interviews, but he did allow us to submit some questions that we are going to be sharing with you here. This is one of the first ones we want to share. The question was, Given the situation that began with your double-blind test for Mr. Levengood and culminated in Nancy Talbot's appearance on Coast to Coast, we were wondering if you felt that his reported results on that fabricated circle nullified all of his prior work. To which Colin responded, No, I don't think it takes away from all of his work, but raises considerable questions. We then ask, Additionally, we wanted to know if anyone else has done productive research regarding the idea of the nodes being manipulated and metallic particles' presence. Colin responded, now debunked HSC Labs did some, and I also worked with the University of Birmingham's Department of Biology, who found no changes from normal. HSC's results were suspect. Too complex to go into now. Levengood did most of that work. So there's the big picture on that. There's Mm. a lot going on. We're, by the way, only reproducing pre-existing material here with regard to this, as you said, fracas. (laughs) It's quite a dust up. We've certainly encountered a lot of these over the course of many legends that we've covered. There get to be these camps that get very polarized and opinions are very strong. But you definitely have to do, and we always try to do this, is take a look at the people that are involved because there are personalities, whether they're scientists or civilians or eyewitnesses or outsiders or debunkers. Everyone has a personality and everyone is bringing something to the table that you have to keep in mind. That doesn't mean that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. It just means you take everything with the grain of the appropriate salt. (laughs) Delicious. Especially salt uh, really uh, uh, boosts the flavor of oatmeal. Yes, indeed. You notice it's pretty bland if you don't add a pinch. So the point for me in light of all of this that we've just heard is that you got to look at the data and you have to now wonder, is that data intact? Is that genuine, authentic? Uh, Has it been altered? As you said, uh, do all plants have blown nodes? I don't believe that's the case, but it has to be looked at again. And when you're talking about microscopic elements like these small magnetic spherules, are they actually magnetic? Where do they come from? Is that naturally occurring? Is it lead shot from a farmer's shotgun? You've got to look at all these things. Well, the pictures that they show, these things are probably too small to be seen with the naked eye, as they say then you need a lab to study all this stuff. But which lab? Which one doesn't get debunked? I don't even know this uh, HSC lab that did the uh, reports. And when people say like, well, just send it to a lab, they don't know that lab work costs thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have to pay somebody to do. And in this case, 
with especially paranormal things, they're not going to likely do it for nothing just to see what the real story is. So this stuff costs a lot of money, a lot of financing, and what you end up with is people like BLT and the people involved and others who are independent doing their own legwork on this to get at answers, and then this is what happens. But even when you try to do some uh, earlier testing, as we saw with the radiation from a government lab, that doesn't always go successfully. So my point here is this all has to be considered, the personalities involved, as you said, but it's also, again, I come back to the PGF and the Patterson-Gimlin film and Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, and you can say, well, look at Roger Patterson. He's a total flim-flam man. He told you he was going to go fake a Bigfoot film, and he got the costume, and he had Bob Hieronymus uh, paid off wearing a, a fur-covered uh, football helmet, as Bob Hieronymus claims, with his glass eye embedded in clay for that look back, and he's got it all explained. And you can say, well, there you go. You look at Roger Patterson, obviously the guy's a, a huckster and a hoaxer, and you can write off the film, but you can't because we have the film. We have what's on the film. And in this case, crop circles are real. And unlike Patty, crop circles don't walk off into the brush. They're there to be studied. So what can we learn from them? Well, what can be studied, even after they get uh, harvested, is the designs. And the designs may have meaning and a message in them. And that's what we're going to take a look at next here with sacred geometry. We promised that we'd talk about this in relation to crop circles, so we're just going to do a brief overview of it. Sacred geometry uh, comprises shapes, equations, dimensions, and ratios that have been applied to designs, art, and architecture over millennia. This is uh, from page 42 of Colin's book. Especially sacred buildings and sites like churches, cathedrals, temples, and prayer, and meditation designs like mandalas. Ancient societies like the Greeks, Romans, Celts, and others used the golden mean or sacred ratios for their building and artwork. They seem to know the relationship between these ratios to those found in nature, like the nautilus shell or the spiral of a galaxy. While not present in all crop circles, sacred geometry is an idea that comes up again and again. The philosophy within sacred geometry suggests that God is the ultimate geometer, and that that geometry occurs in nature from the smallest particles of matter, such as leptons and quarks, all the way up to the shape of the universe and its contents. By the way, Forrest, uh, quarks come in several forms. Hmm. Top, bottom, up, down, and then my two favorite, strange and charm. <laughs> that I knew, but I, you know what? I'm not sure I'd ever heard the word leptons. Yeah, that was, it was new to me when I was looking okay. into this. All right. But here's the thing that we've often said is that it's not impossible then for really weird stuff to happen that goes beyond the rules as we know, because on the subatomic level, the rules don't seem to apply or they have their own rules. That's Up right. Is it's down, a different set right. of rules of some kind. Yeah, so. there you go. Well, you have to note that sacred geometry is about humans ascribing a special value to something. And I saw a comment on one website that drew an apt comparison in that sacred geometry is to geometry what a sacred dance is to dance. To be clear, sacred geometry is not science. It's more quantification of the observation of parallels between some aspects of geometry and naturally occurring patterns in the universe. If we look at the word sacred, uh, one of the definitions for it is dedicated to or set apart for the worship of a deity, worthy of religious veneration, example, the sacred teachings of the Buddha, made or declared holy, like sacred bread and wine, uh, worthy of respect, venerable, of or relating to religious objects, rites, or practices. 
But by this point, most folks are aware of geometry in nature, like the logarithmic spiral of growth that a nautilus shell has. This is called a Fibonacci spiral, and it is also considered a fractal or a visual representation of a feedback loop. These naturally occurring geometric shapes are ubiquitous. Uh, you can find them in broccoli, ferns, peacock feathers, a pineapple, a pine cone, tree branches, spiral galaxies, hurricanes. Hmm. And, you know, it's obviously subjective as to whether or not you believe that God is behind the creation of the universe or this is all just simple science. But either way, these patterns are present in everything. According to Wikipedia, Plato said, God geometrizes continually. And more recently, German mathematician and physicist Carl Friedrich Gauss, one of the greatest mathematicians in modern times, who passed away in 1855, was known for his expression, God arithmetizes. Now, listen to this quote from fractalfoundation.org, where they say that fractals are smart, science, math, and art. Here's the quote. Fractals transcend scale. Fractals occur over a wide range of sizes in nature, from the microscopic to the galactic, and at all time scales, from nanoseconds to millions of years. We're going to talk more about fractals in a second, but listen to this other quote from a website called tokenrock.com. The discovery of the relationship of geometry and mathematics to music within the classical period is attributed to Pythagoras, who found that a string stopped halfway along its length produced an octave, while a ratio of 3 to 2 produced a fifth interval and 4 to 3 produced a fourth. Pythagoreans believed that this gave music powers of healing, as it could harmonize the out-of-balance body, and this belief has been revived in modern times. Well, there's a whole lot more to the idea of sacred geometry than that, but it's not our goal to teach it all to you here, just to give you an overview and the understanding that math is everywhere in nature, and many see it as evidence of God or some equally formidable higher intelligence. Since that kind of math is universally pervasive, would it not make the absolute best way for disparate forms of intelligent life to communicate? Is it possible that crop circles featuring sacred geometry are attempting to send a message in the most basic language of science. Uh, by the way, one of the coolest things I've seen lately at the fractalfoundation.org are hot air balloons with fractals on them. They've been flying them <laughs> at the world-famous Albuquerque, New Mexico Hot Air Balloon Festival, but you can see them right now on Instagram at Flying Fractals, F-L-Y-I-N-G-F-R-A-C-T-A-L-S. Well, this brings us to the golden mean or the golden ratio. You've heard us talk about that in the show already. It's defined as the ratio between two quantities being identical to the ratio of their sum. Now, I know this may be hard to visualize. Even more confusing, if you're not a geometric thinker, is Euclid's original definition of it. Quote, a straight line is said to have been cut in extreme and mean ratio when, as the whole line is to the greater segment, so is the greater to the lesser. Yeah, I can't follow that either, but I know what it looks like, and you would recognize it too <laughs> yeah. if you saw it. It's most easily identified in what's called a golden rectangle, which you can divide into right. a square and a smaller rectangle that have the exact same properties, meaning you could then create a square in the smaller rectangle that produces yet another rectangle with the exact same relationship to the square within it, and so on yeah. and so on. And for those folks that, again, this was a little too complicated for us to explain, let alone understand ourselves... There have been diatonic ratios found in crop circles for those who understand music theory a little bit or are musicians. And that theory was put forward in a paper by Gerald Hawkins, PhD, DSC, that within the ratios of the large to small circles, diatonic ratios can be found. And uh, you're just going to have to maybe look that one up on the internet because uh, 
Again, it's a little too complicated to explain, but it's interesting in that maybe crop circles in their ratios are musical. There is a musical relationship there, perhaps. Yes, and that's not something that I've seen anyone attempt to decode yet, is music in the crop circles, although we have seen a lot of other methods. Well, the long and short of this is, a little mathematical pun there, is that the reason the golden (laughs) mean has been so studied is because of how frequently it appears in nature as well as geometry. Oh, and this all connects back to the Fibonacci sequence as well, which begins as follows. One, then one, two three, five, eight. So in that pattern, each ascending number is the sum of the prior two numbers. So that's why five follows two and three, eight follows five and three, and this goes on ad infinitum. If you map out the Fibonacci sequence, you get a perfect nautilus shell-shaped spiral, which if you then draw at its maximum size within the confines of a golden rectangle, the spiral will tangentially intersect the interior of the rectangle at the exact points that divide the rectangle into smaller golden rectangles, ad infinitum. Hmm. Uh, If you weren't asleep before, you definitely are now. Again, it's hard to follow, (laughs) but if you saw a picture of this, you'd recognize it. See our webpage for links on all of this. Now, to be clear, sacred geometry is a human idea or label placed on geometric shapes that appear in nature, as well as in human-constructed art and architecture. The golden mean, or golden ratio, is the name given to an observable mathematical relationship that can be described with formulas. It is not subject to opinion, unlike the determination of whether or not something is sacred. Mm -hmm. But the golden mean can be found within much, if not most, sacred geometry, and both sacred geometry and the golden mean have turned up, as Forrest said, frequently in crop circles, especially as the crop circles became more complex. Well, something about the geometry here that is said by a lot of researchers, seriologists, and uh, mathematicians is that the geometry that is found in a lot of these crop circles thought to be authentic does not follow traditional Euclidean geometry. And then you look to fractals to explain it or look to fractals for the design. Well, it is in fact time to talk about fractals and you can't talk about fractals without talking about the Mandelbrot set or Benoit Mandelbrot, but we're going to go with Mandelbrot (laughs) for now. I think, doesn't Brot mean uh, bread in German? Yeah. Yes, might. Well, on August 13th, 1991, a formation called the Ickleton Formation appeared in Cambridgeshire. It appeared to be something that is known as a Mandelbrot set. This particular formation was the first fractal crop circle design. So when you talk about the Mandelbrot set, you're talking about something that was actually first visualized at IBM on March 1st of 1980 by Benoit Mandelbrot, who studied Julia sets as well. Now, here's another significant observation made by Thomas mm-hmm. de Michel in May of 2016 in an article titled, Benoit Mandelbrot coined the term fractal at factmyth.com. Quote, the Mandelbrot set contains an infinite amount of Julia sets. Every point in a Mandelbrot set relates back to a Julia set, given some mathematical manipulation, which is part of the reason the Mandelbrot set is so famous. All right, this next section, this is just going to give us a little bit of an overview. This is from the Wikipedia page, which is fairly well flushed out on Mandelbrot sets. Quote, in 1975, Mandelbrot coined the term fractal to describe these structures and first published his ideas, and later translated fractals, form, chance, and dimension. According to computer scientist and physicist Stephen Wolfram, The book was a breakthrough for Mandelbrot, who until then would typically apply fairly straightforward mathematics to areas that had barely seen the light of serious mathematics before. 
Wolfram adds that as a result of this new research, he was no longer a wandering scientist and later called him the father of fractals. Mandelbrot ended up doing a great piece of science and identifying a much stronger and more fundamental idea. Put simply, that there are some geometric shapes, which he called fractals, that are equally rough at all scales. And he uses the word rough very pointedly there. There's Mm -hmm. actually a TED Talk with Mandelbrot that's pretty cool. It's not very long. It's only about 20 minutes or so. You should uh, look for that. We'll have a link to it. No matter how close you look, they never get simpler, much as the section of a rocky coastline you can see at your feet looks just as jagged as the stretch you can see from space. Wolfram briefly describes fractals as a form of geometric repetition, quote, in which smaller and smaller copies of a pattern are successfully nested inside each other so that the same intricate shapes appear no matter how much you zoom into the hole. Fern leaves and Romanesque broccoli are two examples from nature. One might have thought that such a simple and fundamental form of regularity would have been studied for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but it was not. In fact, it rose to prominence only over the past 30 or so years, almost entirely through the efforts of one man, the mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot. Mandelbrot used the term fractal as it is derived from the Latin word fractus, defined as broken or shattered glass. Using the newly developed at the time IBM computers that were at his disposal, Mandelbrot was able to create fractal images using graphics computer code, images that an interviewer described as looking like, quote, the delirious exuberance of the 1960s psychedelic art with forms hauntingly reminiscent of nature and the human body, end quote. Hmm. According to Clark, the Mandelbrot set is indeed one of the most astonishing discoveries in the entire history of mathematics. Who would have dreamed that such an incredibly simple equation could have generated images of literally infinite complexity? Clark also notes an odd coincidence. The name Mandelbrot and the word mandala for a religious symbol. Well, I'm sure that's a pure coincidence. But indeed, Hmm. the Mandelbrot set does seem to contain an enormous number of mandalas. And now for a patented but informative tangent. We have to note that, like all things at this level of fame, there's some dispute as to who came across it first, even if all of what we just read came from the Wikipedia page. On March 13th of 2009, Scientific American posted an article entitled, Who Discovered the Mandelbrot Set? by John Horgan. Listen to this excerpt from that article. The set is named after Benoit B. Mandelbrot, a mathematician at the IBM Thomas J. Watson Research Center. He is best known for coining the term fractal to describe phenomena such as coastlines, snowflakes, mountains, and trees, whose patterns repeat themselves at smaller and smaller scales. Mandelbrot claims that he and he alone discovered the Mandelbrot set, which has fractal properties, about a decade ago. He refers to its image as his signature. Three other mathematicians have challenged his claim. Two maintain that they independently discovered and described the set at about the same time as Mandelbrot did. A third asserts that his work on the set not only predated Mandelbrot's efforts, but also helped to guide them. These assertions have long circulated in the mathematics community, but have only recently surfaced in print. Another excerpt from the same article says, Even Mandelbrot has described his first tentative steps towards the set in 1979 as mindless fun. He began using a computer to map out Julia sets, which are generated Mm. by plugging complex numbers into iterative functions. The set's peculiar properties had been described as early as 1906 by the French mathematician Pierre Fatou. They were named later for Gaston Julia, who successfully claimed that his work on the sets some dozen years later had greater significance than Fatou's. Mandelbrot, who was born in 1924 in Poland, had read the work of both men and studied under Julia in the 1940s. 
Mm. Mandelbrot's early computer images serve to confirm his suspicion that Julia sets have fractal properties. He says he began producing recognizable pictures of the Mandelbrot set, which in a sense is a generalized version of all Julia sets in late 1979. Mandelbrot subsequently displayed images of the set and elaborated on its significance in speeches, papers, and books. This discovery and his other work in fractals were also celebrated in the media in numerous books, notably the bestseller Chaos by former New York Times reporter James Gleick and in IBM advertisements. Oh, yes, remember. No one denies that Mandelbrot's pictures and descriptions spurred other mathematicians to study the set. Two prominent examples are John H. Hubbard of Cornell University and Adrien Duaty of the University of Paris. In the early 1980s, in the course of proving that tiny islands surrounding the main body of the set are linked to it by infinitesimal filaments, they named the set after Mandelbrot. Mandelbrot was the first one to produce pictures of it using a computer and to start giving a description of it, Duaty wrote in 1986. Duati now says, however, that he and other mathematicians began to think that Mandelbrot took too much credit for work done by others on the set and in related areas of chaos. Quote, he loves to quote himself, and he is very reluctant to quote others who aren't dead. End quote. Oh, boy. That's yeah. what Duati said. Well, there's a lot more on this in that article, which we have linked to in our show notes for the webpage for this episode at AstonishingLegends.com. But just like all Astonishing Legends, even a legend within mm -hmm. a legend such as this, there's always more to the story. Even in the, let's say, mainstream and highly respected sciences, there is contentiousness. Because that's people. So That's people. That's exactly what that, we were yeah. saying. There's all, yeah. There are personalities involved here. Right. Well, as we know, alchemical symbols have appeared as crop circles and are some of the more archetypical or perhaps more meaningful designs that have appeared. And humans know these symbols and certainly could have faked them, but what it reminds me of when you talk about the infinitesimally small and extrapolating that into the spiral of galaxies and the order of the universe, it reminds me of the old hermetical alchemical saying, as above, so, so below. below. Mm -hmm. And that is the secret of the universe. It's the-, the That's a really the, good the, connection, Forrest. <laughs> I'm impressed. Well, I've had a lot of kombucha. That's so why I'm, Chris Williamson calls you the franchise, yeah. man. You're the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have you do the uh, with 80% of the outline, and then I just sit back with these uh, pearl onions of wisdom. I, hey, I love it. Let's keep peeling. Okay. All right. Well, you keep going. You're, you're, you're on a roll. But you know what I'm saying, though, yeah. is that the, the secret here, the message- the through line, the everything is connected, is that it doesn't matter. In the, uh, I don't know if this parable is correct, but I was thinking about this earlier, is that the secrets of the mustard seed there, uh, the smallest thing grows into the largest thing, to use a biblical reference from Jesus, that it doesn't matter how small it is, subatomic particles, quarks, Tom Lutons, <laughs> What was that guy's name? <laughs> Lutines, Lutons, yeah. Glutons, uh, whatever the, the name of the particle is, it uh, those behave, yeah, there you go. They behave differently, but it's the building blocks of the entire galaxy, the entire universe, and maybe just this bubble universe, and an infinite number of bubble universes. And that's what I see when I see the triple Julia set spiraling out. And it's beautiful. Yes, and I don't know if you remember what I said, but, and I only just learned this when I was trying to flush this out and water it down into something mm -hmm. simple. 
the Mandelbrot set contained infinite Julia sets. Yeah. And so what's interesting when you think about these patterns, again, and the origins of these particular circles, authentic or not, depending on whether hoaxers produce them from their own minds or maybe mm -hmm. something different, which we're going to discuss, Mandelbrot the first visualized at IBM the Mandelbrot said, hey, he was able to print it out. And if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. I think this was on a dot matrix printer. On March 1st of 1980, the Mandelbrot set, that was the first visualization yeah. of what it would look like. It took a computer to map it out. Right. Then on August 11th, 1991, the 11th day of the eighth month of 11 years after that, <laughs> the Mandelbrot crop circle appeared. Now the mm. first Julia set, the single one, that appeared yeah. at Stonehenge was July 7th, 96, five years later, roughly. Mm -hmm. And then the triple Julia that showed up at Avebury Truslow in Wiltshire was July 29th, 1996, just a few days after the single Julia set. Then mm -hmm. there was the Galaxy Spiral, which I have some sad news about, which I'll share with you later, August 12th, oh. 2001. Yes. But here's the thing that's really weird, and I told you this when I was writing this up. Yeah. I don't know if it means anything or it's just a coincidence, but it is kind of a strange coincidence. When you look at the amount of time between the day that Mandelbrot first printed out the Mandelbrot set at IBM and the day that the Mandelbrot set crop circle appeared, and this is counting the last day of this event using a day-date calculator. I just happened to do this. I don't know why I did this, but uh, mm. it's 4,181 days between the Mandelbrot set being visualized from the computer and the Mandelbrot crop circle appearing. 4,181 days. Right. Turns out that is a Fibonacci number. It is the 19th number of the Fibonacci sequence, exactly, to that day. Ah, and there is a yes. wide range between the one before and the one after. Mm -hmm. So that is fascinating to me that the Fibonacci <laughs> number is the number of days apart between the discovery, yeah. the visual discovery of the Mandelbrot and the one appearing in the crop field. That is really quite something. Right. If the right. Mandelbrot crop circle is a hoax, to have accidentally planted it on that exact yeah. day that's a Fibon Fibonacci day is amazing. And if you want right. to look this up yourself, there's all kinds of wonder, one of the wonderful things about the internet. There's all kinds of places where you can yeah. just type in a number and it tells you all its properties. So it's not a prime number, but it is a Fibonacci <laughs> number. And, yeah. and there's not a whole lot. There's well, only 19 of them no. before that. One. There's only 18 of them before yeah. that one. Right. Well, it's just very clever hoaxers who are math nerds. Yeah. And crop circle nerds. We don't know, though, that Mandelbrot's a hoax, do we? Is that a confirmed hoax? No, no. Oh, okay. Because you seem to be implying that just now. So I no, just I wanted was, to... Yeah, because I was joking. Okay. I was being uh, I wanted to make sure people understood your <laughs> sarcasm. Yeah. No, no, I was... Yes, I was being sarcastic in that uh, you could do a lot of these things that are kind of unexplainable, but uh, really it starts to make less and less sense when you consider all the inside connections, all the thoughts that you can tie through all of these formations and the significant points that seem to have meaning when you step back and look at it. Either it's really ingenious or, you know, there's metadata in here. It's kind of like, talk about the Francis Bacon code, the cipher, and that the key to solving the cipher is in the cipher itself. And there's double layers of meaning here within the cipher. That's right. now you're talking about contact and and the Venusians or whomever, thinking in four dimensions or three, where we're struggling with thinking in two dimensions. It's of an order that points to something very clever at the very least of it. 
But just for the folks at home, Scott, you're talking about the the pattern the design that looks like a heart shaped kind of a thing, like a bulbous heart. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's okay. a heart with little attachments to it. Yes, I'm sorry, right. I, I, I'm so familiar with it now. I'm not even describing it visually. It looks for like us a heart. Lay people, yeah, with yeah. little yeah. At, uh, symmetrical little satellites connected to it. Yes. Yeah. If you just look up Mandelbrot set on your phone or computer, it'll come up just like that. There's not. Mm-hmm. There's only one version of it. Well, that is mind blowing stuff, man. Yeah. Weird, wild stuff. That's as about as much Johnny Carson as I do. We're going to take a look now at some theories. Now, these aren't our theories, although we've just skimmed over them. And some of these will appear in Andrew Collins' book, Signs of Contact. And there's been ones since then that don't appear in the book, but we're just going to give them uh, brief mentions. But we're going to talk about the fun ones and then the more outlandish ones and then perhaps the more spiritually significant ones, but there's an overall theory that Collins puts forward. And I believe he's kind of steering towards that. And that's that there's an intelligence behind crop circles that could be like the human immune system. So the analogy that Colin Andrews makes is that the crop circle manifestations could be an autonomic response from the earth, similar to the innate and undeniably intelligent responses of the human immune system. This does not demand a conscious entity wielding the controls, so to speak. It simply reacts as a highly functioning biosystem, much like the human body or the global ecosphere. Hmm. He's got a lot of interesting ideas, which I, I tend to side with, I think. But my thought here is that there could be a connection between a global human consciousness, individual consciousness of, of the person, as we've seen the interactions and we've talked about them, about individuals being able to make a connection with communication with this phenomenon. Same thing as John Keel making contact you know, with UFOs or the flashlight or the ESETI folks uh, doing dances and rituals and getting the phenomenon to respond. I think what Colin's saying here is that our human minds, our global consciousness, in whatever form that takes, is connected to the place in which we live. And there are a lot of spiritual practices that believe there is a mental link between that and the spirit of the earth, if you will. And this nature's response might be a cry for help, a wake-up call for a rude awakening, and that we need to act soon and pay attention to our surroundings, or else we're going to suffer a sickness. So he goes on to this other quote, which is interesting. This is Colin Andrews saying, the concept of intelligence does not always have to include the use of tools and the development of language. Nature is intelligent. It reasons, it thinks, it responds. Astronaut Edgar Mitchell, the 12th man to walk on the moon, believes that the universe itself is an intelligent, self-correcting entity. Hmm. So it's all got, uh, again, not a thinking entity, but there is consciousness involved that just operates on its own and, and seeks balance and order. And maybe when something's out of order, warning signs go up, like the human body. You get a fever, you get a sore throat, you get a rash. There are signs that something's not right. So keeping that in mind, I think that Colin Andrews is leaning towards some kind of communication going on between our consciousness and, as you said earlier, the forces that are outside of us, I don't want to say alien because then people think of little green men and, and grays and all that, but something that is outside of our world and something that's communicating with our inner world. There are two forces going on. And somehow this is a message to both of those. Well, now we're going to take a look at some of the more popular theories that have been around for a while 
regarding what force may be causing authentic crop circles and how. But first, uh, here's a few interesting points I found in the book as we were skimming through uh, trying to round up these ideas. I found a nice quote that sums up a concept we often mention on the show, one that we first heard mentioned by other paranormal researchers on Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast. And this quote comes from William James, whose description on a Wikipedia page uh, goes as follows. William James, uh, born 1842, passed away in 1910, was an American philosopher, historian, and psychologist, and the first educator to offer a psychology course in the United States. James is considered to be a leading thinker of the late 19th century, one of the most influential philosophers of the United States, and father of American psychology. Not too shabby. Pretty good uh, paragraph to sum you up at the beginning on your uh, your own wiki entry. Oh, that's a lot better than uh, former television commercial editor makes podcast about the paranormal. <laughs> and friend. Yeah, that's what I get. Like, <laughs> you click the link and it's broken. It's just, uh, or needs citation. Yeah. That's what I need. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen to this, Scott. I, I like this quote I found in uh, one of the chapter headings of his book. If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, you mustn't seek to show that no crows are. It is enough if you prove one single crow to be white. So you know what he's saying here. It's uh, like not all paranormal stories need to be true, or in this case, all crop circles to be authentic. Just one paranormal instance or crop circle does for it to be a real phenomenon. Right. So it's kind of the opposite of that. But uh, yes, he's... <laughs> Anyway, I thought that summed it up in uh, much better than I could or have been trying to, is that uh, that's what we have here. Back to the uh, trying to prove at least one authentic. And I think the one uh, talking about Julia's sets, uh, that's most compelling because Colin Andrews, it's been documented, you know, contacted uh, the military when the Julia set appeared across the road from Stonehenge. Uh, so that one was pretty well documented with uh, footage and photographs and eyewitness testimony and the statements from the military, the British authority who controls traffic, they all said that, uh, yeah, there was no uh, no one reported coming in and out of there. Plus the Stonehenge security people reported no one entering that area. So that's one case you can point to in the middle of the day where it's like, it's pretty unlikely this whole thing was made in 45 minutes by a group of people that just mysteriously showed up in the vanished. 45 minutes prior, there's no sign of it. 45 minutes later, boom, it's there. Hi, I'm Scott, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott. I just realized we have the same name. Huh. Well, anyways, I'm Scott. Not that Scott, but you're listening to Astonishing Legends with that Scott, the real one, and Forrest. Now back to the show. And then another point here, uh, Colin reminds us that the oft-mentioned woodcut from 1678 called The Mowing Devil, we've talked about a lot. You've probably seen it, folks. Uh, it's a very common image people point to. The accompanying text with the image describes the scene where a farmer and some local villagers in a hamlet of Hertfordshire claim to have witnessed the devil showing up, riding a chariot of fire, get this, in a ball of light coming from the sky and cutting the farmer's crop of oats and forming a circle. Two other examples from the 1600s describe something very similar. So that mention there of ball of light, you know, <laughs> that's what's important to note here in the description is the ball of light and other balls of light. Not so much Beelzebub in a fiery chariot. That could be just a product of the time. Well, you, you describe what you know. And uh, that made sense to them. But the ball of light, certainly people could uh, describe and uh, 
it was worthy enough to put in that description. So there's another anecdote that reinforces the idea that this crop circle phenomenon isn't just a late 1980s or 1990s fad. Colin mentions that around either 1923 or 1924, a farmer at Chesfoot Head saw four crop circles in the same exact field that Colin did when he first saw his five circles in 1983. The farmer had seen Colin in a BBC telly program talking about uh, his field and seeing the circles and then wrote him a letter, wrote Colin a letter, saying he'd seen the same circles in the same field back in 1923. So that's even more, uh, at least personal confirmation that this thing is not a new phenomenon. And he wasn't the only farmer to come forward, as we've mentioned. Many, many farmers have, at this point, uh, the same experience for generations prior to the 1980s. And here's another interesting point about locations, the importance of locations. Crop circles appear in the same fields again and again, and in three specific cases in the same identical spot. Right. Like the phenomenon wanting you to pay attention this place is important. This location is important. If I don't have your attention now, I'm going to do this two more times until you finally get it and pay attention and study this thing. Crop circles appear frequently close to water. And Andrews has found a 90% correlation between crop circles and underground aquifers, as we mentioned earlier. So he's also found that in his documenting of crop circles. The vast majority of patterns that appear worldwide are within 40 miles of Stonehenge. But as of the writing of this book, there were no reports from South Africa for whatever reason. And it could be, maybe it's government censorship. Maybe there's just no reporting, but that's kind of strange. I'd also read that uh, there weren't any reported from mainland China. That's probably more likely censorship. Uh, or just nothing weird goes on here. Keep looking somewhere else. I'm not sure about China now, but it was weird that uh, South Africa, no reports. Uh, but maybe that's changed since then. Maybe not. I don't know. But Stonehenge is noted for having the highest level of ancient circular archaeological sites in the world. And the design of Stonehenge mirrors many of the basic crop circle patterns. So there's something significant about Stonehenge and the whole area. That's the bulk of it. But again, these things appear all over the world. And so now you have a worldwide network of really skilled hoaxers. Or... It's a global phenomenon. So continuing on, we're going to talk about uh, maybe some of the more challenging or, well, this first one's kind of silly. So <laughs> our good buddy Rob Christofferson reminded us to cover this whimsical angle, rutting hedgehogs as being a possibility. Well, if you look on the Wikipedia page, uh, I believe in Australia, they, they were thinking some, the local animals there, maybe a Tasmanian devil had uh, created circles and poppy fields because they got a little loopy and they were chasing each other in circles. That's what created the circles. Uh, this though, the rutting hedgehogs idea, as it is described in Signs of Contact, quote, rutting hedgehogs was a sarcastic explanation for crop circles coined by Gordon Crichton of the Flying Saucer Review. Crichton intended it as a put down of the media for their often ridiculous explanations of the crop circle phenomenon. True to form, many in the media took Crichton seriously, and rutting hedgehogs ended up being cited by journalists as one hypothetical cause for crop circles. So uh, what does that sound like? <laughs> Just like how the media and then the public ran with swamp gas. Right. The next idea that I, I believe somebody wrote in, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get the name, but somebody had mentioned possibly that uh, crop circles were landmarks made by future time travelers. They're us in the future, or some form of us or consciousness in the future coming back to our time 
and creating crop circles as a marker geographically in the landscape, either as a, uh, I guess you could call it a registration point, perhaps, something to do with navigation through space and time or other dimensions. That's an idea that people have brought up and that was brought up to us. But then I wonder how are they seeing or utilizing this if it is time travelers? Because as we've said before, when you're down on the ground, you don't even have an idea what this thing is. It's like the, the massive Milk Hill formation. Remember we talked about in part two? Yes. It took them 30 minutes to get to the center of that. The galaxy. They couldn't spiral. even find it. Yeah. yeah. It's so large from the ground, it just seems like an endless sea of circles. But from the air, it takes up most of that hilltop there. And it's very windy and it's very pronounced, those 409 circles. It's really only significant seeing it from the air. Unlike the white horse effigies or the white horse markings on the side of the hill, you can see those. And those are meant to be a spiritual marker of the white horse carrying the soul to the afterlife in ancient Albion, the old name for England. So those are more significant meant for people. But then you look at the Nazca lines and Peru, and uh, I hope it's Peru. It and is. again, those can't be seen from the ground. The powder there used to make the lines are like crushed glass. It's been described uh, as, as I remember reading, but you have to see it from the air. Certainly that could been for the gods looking down and enjoying these, uh, these landmarks. So here, uh, who knows? We're not going to go. And what are these time travelers trying to do? And why didn't they stop the coronavirus? That's my point. If they can time travel, but they need a mark and a field to know where to land? Or eh, I don't, I... don't don't pull on that. Okay, uh, okay. That right. uh, thought sweater. Yes. Well, here's another idea that somehow modern druids are creating these. Uh, this comes from Kevin, who sent us an email saying, after listening to the two episodes of the Crop Circle series, it makes me wonder if it's a secret society of geometric mystics or druids that could be responsible for some of the larger, more intricate designs and maybe choosing locations and using the idea that sacred geometry can bring about or at least influence changes with intentional directions being the motivation. But it seems to me that this could also be a neo-Druid ritual going down. Also, looking over the circles, they're not exactly symmetrical at a glance. They look perfect, but it appears to me that there is some human error in there. Just some brief thoughts. Looking forward to part three. Uh, and he really enjoys the show, and he likes to drink his morning coffee every day from his astonishing mug. So thank you very much, Kevin. Like I said, perhaps some circles, but I can't see them doing all. That's yeah. the, the the bottom line here. And obviously, these symbols are like sigils almost. Maybe they have power in themselves, as a as some people believe, with mystical sigils, that the design itself is a set of instructions or has power within itself just by being there and a person witnessing it. Just you looking at it has an effect. As a lot of people said, a very calming one, that there's something magical and mystical about being in the circle, but also a calming effect of, you know, looking at it, just like a lot of art does. Uh, the next one here is that somehow these uh, crop circle appearances are connected to ley lines as Colin describes them, invisible lines of Earth energies, especially magnetism that crisscross the planet in a geodetic grid. Many sacred sites are aligned along ley lines, as are many crop circles. Psychic sensitives, using faculties similar to those employed in dowsing, can quote-unquote read ley lines, and are usually proven correct when equipment is used to register magnetic and other readings. 
Ley lines were originally recognized and reported by Alfred Watkins in 1921 after he noticed that an invisible straight line ran through the hilltops where ancient sacred sites were situated. So we, we get a lot of uh, letters about ley lines, about covering those, so it's, it's interesting and fascinating about it. Perhaps like the 415 incident that Colin experienced. So another uh, theory that he put forward is perhaps a new form of language that is visual and does not need words or numbers. Perhaps there's something about it that you can just see it or be in it and understand the meaning. So now there are more, let's say, prominent or popular theories involved, including the Gaia theory in that there is a Mother Earth connection, you could say, to some kind of consciousness, uh, magnetism, life force energies. I'm reading uh, bullet points here from Colin's book, underground water and microwaves, which we've talked about, plasma vortexes and whirlwinds, which we've already also talked about, uh, aliens making them, ETs and UFO landing sites. Not perhaps that they need them for navigation, but they are just uh, the byproduct of landing which is kind of fun. It's like a, uh, a tuned exhaust or a novelty horn that plays a tune <laughs> with your vehicle if you're an alien. Like, hey, we land this thing and it makes a, a fun Julia set. Right. <laughs> They'll think that's funny. Government satellites, perhaps, for some reason causing these things. Here's one that's kind of weird. Messages from the dead uh, from Oliver Lodge, who is a scientist and also a cultist, you could say, uh, that there is a message from beyond that is being created by this guy. Is there a connection to crop circles and cattle mutilations? Well, Colin Andrews doesn't think so on that one, because uh, in all his years of experience, he's never seen one uh, or heard of one in his investigations. There was one in the United States a while ago, but the the, mutil the mutilated cow had all the signs that were classic, uh, drained blood, laser cuts, missing pieces, but it was not in the circle. It was just nearby. So yeah, it's another one of your favorite things. It's confluence of multiple paranormal, seemingly unrelated paranormal events yeah. coincidentally happening at the same time. <laughs> well, what's interesting here, you look at the the message and, and, and uh, like Andrews would say, it's like, this is a peaceful beautiful, loving message of sorts. Maybe a warning, like, hey, pay attention to your surroundings and your environment, Mother Earth. But it's a gentle, beautiful way to, to do that using natural settings and crops that are, you know, unless you tromp on them, still usable. And with a medium that's a life-nourishing food for us, as opposed to the cattle mutilations, which are horrific. And so... It could be that thing of uh, some entity uh, consciousness is creating a beautiful circle nearby and it sees another entity and say, like, hey, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I'm cutting up a cow. What are you doing? Oh, I was just making a nice design for people <laughs> to look at. You carry on. Okay. Well, I mean, we could go into depth into each one of these theories, but they fall apart pretty quickly or you know, with a lapse of logic or there's just no way to make any more headway into making them viable. Well, if it is time travelers, how are we going to know? Unless uh, you wake up tomorrow and uh, we live in an entirely different world and you can remember what the world was like. Right. Let's look at some other ideas, though, that really captivated me that you found. Uh, one of them's called the gift in this little section. This is a one of the more obscure observations made about crop circles, but I liked it a lot. I'm going to just I put together a very brief summary of this, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. For a lot of folks out there, there seems to be a particular incident that is a defining moment of interest for them, 
when it comes to crop circles. And for author Doug Ruby, it was an observation experiment called Operation Chameleon. Doug is a former U.S. Air Force pilot and commercial airline pilot for 24 years, and uh, at the time he wrote this book anyway, and he became particularly interested in figuring out just what was going on with crop circles after reading about one particular incident. I'm going to read about just a short section about Project Chameleon here from page 7 of his book, The Gift by Doug Ruby, published in 1995. He's citing another book called Harbingers of World Change, which is the one other book I really wanted to get and could not get in time. It does not exist on Kindle, so instant gratification was not possible there. But as reported, he says on page seven of his book, quote, as reported in Harbingers of World Change, John McNish and David Morgenstern ran a surveillance operation known as Project Chameleon in the summer of 1991. This operation followed Operation Blackbird, which we mentioned in part two, and remember, we did mention John McNish as the producer or director of Crop Circle Communique, too. That's right. That's uh, right. And the other one. Yeah, and he's written some books. Yes. So yes. he's uh, been searching them. Uh, he's been researching them for a while. Yes. And this particular uh, experiment was located on Morgan's Hill near Devizes in England. Don't know if I'm saying that right. D-E-V-I-Z-E-S. They set up banks of expensive cameras and infrared equipment to overlook the same field where an awesome quadruple ringed circle appeared on June 1st, 1990, followed by a Celtic cross on July 5th in the same year. Besides the video equipment, powerful directional microphones were pointed at the field, operating with a range of 2 to 40,000 hertz. All sound in the field would be recorded. The range included infrasound, audible sound, and some ultrasound. In addition, intruder alarm equipment was set up at both entrance points to the field by Mike Carey, director of Cloud9, a security system marketing company. Anyone entering from either direction would trigger warning indicators. Further, a remote-controlled Skystock television camera was mounted by Cloud9 on a 150-foot arm to scan the entire area, including both entrances. Any movement would be detected. With all these various sensors, unobserved access to the field was virtually impossible. The dedication of these crop circle watchers paid off on the night of June 28th to 29th, 1991, even though it was cloudy and damp all evening with an unusually heavy fog, note that, and mist moving in at about 3 a.m., they decided to keep the equipment running. It was not until around 6 a.m. that the unseasonable fog began to dissipate. Then finally, as the dawn broke, the mist cleared. They could not believe their eyes as they viewed new markings in the field. Rushing down the hill, they saw a dumbbell formation with circles of unequal size. How could it be? There was no sign of entry, not even footprints in the wet soil. All recordings were completely blank at all frequencies. The editor of Harbingers of World Change said, Quote, I spoke to Mike Carey, who was first into the dumbbell formation. He had walked a long way along a tram line to get there without damaging the standing crop. His trousers were soaked by the wet crop and his boots covered in mud. The circles were perfectly swirled with the crops bent but unbroken. There was no sign of footprints or muddy tramplings in the circles. He said, quote, when I was at Blackbird last year, I really thought all you people were daft and the circles were man-made. <laughs> Now I just don't know what to think. He and the others who were there that night were puzzled and rather thoughtful. It was just as if a conjurer had spread a large silk handkerchief in front of them, waved his hands, and then produced from under it a magical white rabbit. Only this cosmic conjurer was himself invisible. 
So that's mm. Operation Chameleon. Fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. Not one of Colin Andrews' operations, just something else. But Colin mentions it in uh, his book, Signs of Contact. He mentions mm-hmm. also that I, I I think it was Mike Curry, but I can't remember. One of these party, they went home from this, and the same pattern appeared in their yard the next morning. Whoa. Yeah. And it was after they had the thought, how could this have happened? Mm-hmm. And then I think the next thought they had that Colin said they had was, could this just happen anywhere, anytime? And then when he woke up <laughs> the next morning, he saw it in his yard. So, yes. Yeah. So that gets this guy, Doug Ruby, into this. So now I'm going to just briefly sum up his book here. And I do want everyone to remember about that fog, okay? Because that's going to really play a part in my wrap-up here. Now, what Doug Ruby thinks is he thinks that the simple circles or the simple designs contain the instructions to decipher the more complex ones. He felt that these models or these uh, patterns were meant to be spun. Spinning models reveal something very interesting. For example, he thinks the Alton Barnes pictogram, which was the first pictogram, was the one to start with, especially since it appeared twice, as Forrest said, and uh, was talking about the importance of one Mm -hmm. that's appearing over and over, and the second time twice as big as before. He felt that was a sign. So what he does is he extrapolates the shapes out into three-dimensional objects. He finds this woodworker, and he starts having small 3D models of all of these made. He relies almost solely on the pictogram ones, and in making and spinning these models, he reveals these shapes that he's convinced are detailing plans to build some kind of ship. Whoa. Now, it sounds pretty far out, but when you see the model spinning and then you read the book, by the end, it seems to get more and more plausible. It's a leap for sure, but it's definitely a unique way of looking at what the message of the crop circles may be. It's very much the contact movie approach. Let me just Mm -hmm. show you, Forrest, like the stuff. There's one of the models being spun. Yeah. You wow. start to see these weird cone. rings. Yeah. A lot of these remind me of um, of some of the special effects. I'm turning pages here, sorry. Right. Because I'm trying right. to show forest pictures. You guys can't see pictures. But you can't. I promise you we're eventually going to be on YouTube here. But look at these, <laughs> forest, And um, yeah. you can yeah. see that what happens when they get spun. They remind me of the special effects in one of my favorite movies of all time, Metropolis, made in 1927 in Germany. Yes. By Fritz Lang. Yes. Right. With, uh, there's a lot of really the crazy, rings. cool... Yeah, rings yeah, and that. Like a Jacob's Ladder kind of a thing. But you, you know what you're talking about, We, I think we mentioned this maybe in part one and that other people studying this have realized that the one that's very common is the the pyramid shape or the triangle shape with the round circles at each point. Yes, and each one's different. Yes, yes. and if you make a model of that and you shine a light down onto it, it's mm-hmm. almost like what you're seeing or would be seeing in the crops is the shadow of this three-dimensional object. And if you rotate it, you get all these other patterns which end up being uh, in good ratio to the other dimensions of the pattern. Right. That's maybe how they're being made, is that there is somewhere a three-dimensional, could be another dimension, there's a three-dimensional model or map or die, you could say, a form. Yes. And somehow an energy is being projected down onto it or it emanates from itself, and that's the pattern that you see. But we can't see the 3D or 4D or 5D or the 11-dimensional model, whatever it is. We just see its shadow, its aftermath. Exactly. And that's something that I thought about when I thought about like these cell phones not working in the circles but working outside of them. What if the object is still there? Hmm. But we just can't perceive it. We can only perceive the impression it's making on the ground. Interesting. And it is a three-dimensional object making a two-dimensional impression for us, or a four-dimensional object, like you said, or five. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so that's the thought that I had. Well, anyway, Ruby actually conceives of the spinning version of the Mandelbrot set as an energy uh -huh. field encasing the craft that he thinks the circles are plans for. Whoa, yeah. Yeah. That's for us I mean, reacting to this picture that I'm going to <laughs> illegally post on the internet when we get done. Right. He's thinking outside the box or beyond the two dimensions of the way the circles are presented. And it makes sense. If some intelligent force were trying to share knowledge with us but was restricted mm -hmm. to presenting it on a two-dimensional plane for some reason, maybe it would expect us to figure it out. He likens it to a puzzle that we have to solve. Now, one of the things that I like about this book is that it references Operation Chameleon, which is definitely a defining crop circle. By the way, I'd like to add something I think we left out about the Stonehenge Julia said. On the order of ones that couldn't have been hoaxes, there was another one that appeared on military land as well, patrolled 24 hours a day with sophisticated technology. No one saw a thing and none of the tech picked anything up. Again, coming back to one of my favorite observations that Doug Ruby and I'm nearly certain that's not his real name because this guy makes a point of not wanting any notoriety so much so his name is not even on the front cover of the book. And on top hmm. of that, he vanished from public eye after this book was published. Imagine my surprise when my used copy of it arrived and it was signed by him, by the way. Oh, very cool. Yes. yes. But at the end of the book, which again is called The Gift, The Crop Circles Deciphered, he mentions a circle in Kansas. And I use the term circle as just a label because this isn't a circle yes. at all. This one is hard to get information on. I'm pretty sure Colin Andrews mentioned it in one of his books, which uh, which one escapes me now. But we've read like six books for this episode. There's one I couldn't <laughs> get in time on top of that that I mentioned a, a minute ago. But I know that somewhere Colin makes reference to a circle that appeared in Kansas sometime in the summer of 1991 which was an astronomically huge year for crop circles globally, especially in England. Whatever this one was, it was almost immediately eradicated by the U.S. government. Uh, mm. Supposedly, this farmer was paid a large sum of money to destroy it. We have not independently corroborated that story, and in fact, it's hard to find many details on, but even the version of it we read about, we think from Colin Andrews, didn't say what the circle was. But mm -hmm. Doug Ruby does, and according to him, it was simple text written in a very plain and easy-to-read font, and it said E, capital E, 97 plus. So it's a capital, mm -hmm. like, Helvetica mm -hmm. E, the number nine, the number seven, and then a plus symbol. It's his contention that this represents the element berkelium, which is a very heavy element, and he thinks that is the last piece of the puzzle for the craft. He thinks that that is the fuel source. Listen to what he says about it on page 168 of his book. Now let's move on to another puzzle within the crop circles. Is this the element used to power the ship? Take a look at diagram 49. These figures were drawn in a Kansas field during the summer of 1991, immediately eradicated by the U.S. government attesting to their importance. If the number 97 is an atomic element, that element is berkelium, capital B, little k, which has an atomic weight of 247, pretty heavy. I believe the answer is yes. It is the element used to power the ship. I will leave it up to our scientists to understand the meaning of the letter E and the plus sign. It is possible that all of these figures have an entirely different meaning in higher mathematics, chemistry, or nuclear physics. At any rate, here is a gimme if there ever was one. This completes my discussion of the ship's power plant. I am fully aware that I have created more questions than I answered, which is unavoidable at this time. He's very matter-of-fact, Mr. Ruby. No, right. But, uh... This is it's just really fascinating stuff, and it's mm -hmm. looking at this in a different way, you know, and yeah. that's what I like. It's looking at the metadata like you were just talking about. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> that's what S.R. Haddon and his team figure out in contact. Yes. You must think like a Venusian. 
yes. on many levels at once. You know, like the, yeah, you, you fold. We're looking at it in 2D. They're much more advanced. They're thinking in three dimensions or more. I mean, we keep saying four and five dimensions, making it up, and uh, we're not physicists. But again, Michio Kaku and his team, they're working on an 11 dimension model of existence in the universe. There's another one. Uh, there's another team that's working on a 10 dimension model. I believe there's a 12 dimension model. So you have to realize, too, there's other teams of very smart people, mathematicians and theoretical physicists that are going uh, with different ideas and trying to arrive there with math. And it's theoretical, but I know we've gotten some comments like, this is silly. It's like, well, they're a lot smarter than I am. So <laughs> if they say that that's possible mathematically, I'm going to go with that. So here, though, these are interesting ideas in that, yes, you have to look at what we're being told in perhaps a different way. But as I said earlier, there are several levels and levels of cleverness, as we've seen here tonight, to these crop circles as just a message. They operate as a beautiful piece of land art. They operate as a symbol that has sacred geometrical meaning or ratios of the golden mean, which has meaning. Or there is something in there that we have not yet tapped into to put the puzzle pieces together, but it's waiting for us to do it. There's two more things I want to mention here relating to Colin Andrews, and then I'm going to get into our final thoughts. Mm -hmm. The first thing we want to talk about is the 415 incident which I compare to the compulsion to get to Devil's Tower in Close Encounters. Listen to this story. Colin Andrews collected soil samples on September 4th, 1986, uh, from a field that he left at 4.15 p.m. in Wantage, England. He placed the samples on a desk in his office at home, and that night, his alarm system, which was fairly sophisticated and that he had designed himself, started going off at 4.15 a.m. Now, we'll remind you, he's an electrical engineer by trade. He said the bright lights came on, alarms were blaring, waking his whole family and their neighbors. The alarms continued doing this for 14 nights in a row. He could find no issues with the system. So one morning he's sitting in his office. He can't figure out why this keeps happening and always at 4.15 a.m. And he's sitting at his desk and he looks up at the map he has on the wall with push pins showing where all the circles are that he's investigated recently. And he's looking at it and he has his Kaiser Soze moment like Chaz Palminteri <laughs> had at the yeah. end of The Usual Suspects. Mm -hmm. This map he's been looking at for ages suddenly has a message for him. The circles that he had been studying and the overwhelming prevalence of their locations all occurred within an equilateral triangle with a point in Wantage, Oxfordshire, Winchester, Hampshire, and Warminster, Wiltshire. By the way, you may remember us talking about Warminster just this past Christmas for our show titled The Christmas Monolith and the Warminster Thing. That's a pretty intense UFO story. And wouldn't you know it, right there at one of the points of what the world now refers to as the Wessex Triangle also referred to as England's UFO capital. So what's the 4.15 about? Well, he left the field with the samples at 4.15 p.m. The alarms went off at 4.15 a.m. for 14 nights in a row. And now he realizes that those three cities formed this triangle with sides, and the sides were not straight lines, but he mm -hmm. said like corridors a few miles wide. But the sides of the triangle were 41.5 miles long. Well, the day he realized this, the alarms stopped going off every morning. For Colin, it was a call to attention that he needed to be more aware of what was going on around him because there had seemed to be these messages with paranormal roots at hand. Hmm. Well, the last book that we want to mention 
because we've looked at a lot of different viewpoints in this series, but there's no question that one of the folks we lean on the most was Colin Andrews. Now, Colin had been there from the start with his first book, Circular Evidence, all the way back in 1989, which he co-wrote with his now-deceased friend, Pat Delgado and pilot Busty Taylor. Colin has taken an astonishing journey through his research into crop circles, and in fact, it is the one that I would say is the most complete. There are definitely other researchers and investigators out there, a lot of them, a lot of respectable ones who've done a ton of amazing work, and he's explored their work as well, as he should. And this story here, this journey that we've all been on now, is as much about his personal journey extrapolated out into the journey for all of us that care to pay attention. And you can examine and study and experience this through his experience. And maybe that's the point here. And that, yes, on one hand, it's something that any one of us who develops a deep interest in something and makes a commitment to follow the clues and the evidence and years of your life to studying this, what happens to you along that way And then if you look at what he's learned, and again, step back from that to see a bigger picture, perhaps that's the value and the meaning in this. Well, and my friend, I am so excited to share this section with you. Don't even look at it. Don't look at the outline. Because this is one of those instances where we were both jamming so hard trying to get everything flushed out that I developed this based on uh, some of the work in a book that I'm about to discuss. And Forrest doesn't know what's coming. And I can't wait to see the look on his face when he hears some of this stuff. (laughs) Okay. So in 2000, stop looking, look away. And I see you in the outline. Click on something else. I'll uh, I'll drift off into space like I usually do when When, I'm reading my own sections. Well, you and and myself too. In 2013, Colin and his wife, Cynthia, published a book titled On the Edge of Reality, a book he felt we should absolutely read in our research for this series. He personally said, you've got to read my book edge of reality. Well, we did read it. And there are some excerpts from it that we'd like to share. Now, if you're interested in this topic at all, we implore you to round out your own personal research with this book, which has a quote on the cover from no less than Dan Aykroyd expounding (laughs) on its comprehensive nature. And he even employs the term high strangeness right there in the cover. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Colin and Cynthia talk in On the Edge of Reality about how by the latter part of the 1990s, the crop circle war, my term, not theirs, had become so vitriolic and diametrically opposed that there was little help of finding common ground. The only question people were asking was whether or not crop circles were real, and there was no quarter given to anyone who wasn't firmly in one camp or the other. But Colin has gone on a journey of consciousness, and more importantly, one acknowledging his own confirmation bias along the way. Most importantly, he recognized in his own time that he was not seeing the big picture. He was refusing to believe that hoaxing was a prominent part of crop circle making. In accepting that idea that it was, he was cast out from the crop circle community after declaring, and we mentioned this earlier, that 80% of crop circles were likely hoaxes. He wanted more information from the hoaxers, and what he discovered was far more astonishing than the simple idea of whether or not any given crop circle was man-made or not. He found out that wasn't the question we should be asking at all. From page 100 of their book, Beyond the Edge of Reality, quote, After the announcement of my 80-20 findings, I became an instant pariah. Researchers flocked to denounce my report and my integrity. 
I received screws in the mail and was publicly accused, even by very good friends, of being bought off by the CIA. End quote. I think we mentioned this once before, but Colin himself states clearly that when one particular hoaxer named Robert Irving told him and Cynthia that he and other makers felt sure that researchers, including himself, knew that circles were hoaxes, especially after Colin himself nearly caught them in the act one night and they fled, leaving behind their gear. When Cynthia asked Colin why that information hadn't been in any reports, Colin reluctantly explained, and he typed this out himself, it's in the book, that it was in their internal reports, but they had not made that fact that they almost caught those guys public because they thought that the gear was left there to distract them from what was undoubtedly a real circle. Listen to this section from pages 99 and 100 of the book. Another researcher said in a conversation, quote, yeah, come on, we know they're man-made, but so what? Why spoil everyone's fun? End quote. At the end of the summer, crop circle photographer Stephen Alexander, mm-hmm. who is the Kashagugu guy with the mullet, <laughs> and Karen Douglas asked me to meet with them at a restaurant in South Sea Portsmouth with a few other researchers. They wanted to, oh, by the way, Stephen, if you should hear this, all due respect to you, your look in the 90s was freaking awesome. I love oh, it. Not it putting still it is. at all. Yeah. No, no, no. It. It's oh, just I haven't a, seen anything I, lately, but it's, yeah, it, it holds up. Yeah, way to commit. I bow down to you because I could never achieve that. So yes, I, just I'm in awe. Definitely yes. an awesome. Well, anyway, Stephen and Karen wanted to discuss their concerns with Colin. Paraphrasing, they said, crop circles are unique pieces of landscape art that promote spiritual upliftment. If you start arresting the makers, you will be doing a grave disservice to the subject and impinging on people's spiritual journey. Hearing this, Colin says, I knew the subject was in deep trouble and I made a 180 degree turn in my approach. Rather than trying to prove that humans could not make circles, I determined to find out how they could. So he's looking for his own white crow in this scenario. Yeah. Listen to this other startling excerpt from page 100 of the Kindle edition of The Edge of Reality. Although most researchers were honest, some did know the extent of human involvement in making circles and were complicit. Supporting this, I received a picture taken with a night-equipped camera of a very high-profile researcher in a field with circle makers as they created a formation. This person never admitted that the involved circle was man-made, even though she was present during its construction. With eyes freed from a constrained mindset, the human fingerprint was everywhere. I love that expression, the human fingerprint. Mm. Cataloging the details, I assessed all the circles that arrived in England during the two-year study, 1999 to 2000, and determined that 80% of them were made by humans. That left 20% where human involvement was unable to be detected. 20% left a huge amount of the mystery unexplained. The problem was that many of the man-made formations in that two-year time period were elaborate, were beautiful, and had anomalous phenomena associated with them. Hmm. Nobody was prepared to believe they were man-made. In fact, for the crop circle believers, the litmus test for whether a crop circle was made by a mysterious force or by humans seemed to rely on the presence of anomalous phenomena and an emotional response. If it made them feel good or evoked spiritual meaning, it could not be man-made. Continuing from page 101, now the question became, How and why do circles in the field, no matter how they got there, cause high strangeness events? Moving forward with this question lifted the veil into non-ordinary reality. It revealed the missing piece of the puzzle, human consciousness. Earlier in tonight's episode, five years ago, when we read the following (laughs) quote from Dave Chorley referring to something Doug Bauer used to say to him while they were still in the field. You might remember it. 
Uh, here's, here it is again from page 101 of Kindle edition of Collins' book. Quote, why do we do it? And we could never explain that certain thing. And then Colin points out that Doug used to say, quote, do you think there's something that makes us? And that did and still does really get to us. We were being told almost to go out and do them. I know it sounds crazy, end quote. So we joked around about that a little bit at the top of the show, but maybe it was a real compulsion. Maybe the whole Ministry of Defense thing had nothing to do with them, or perhaps both things were at play. And this is where this really gets it's just kind of mind-blowing. Colin wanted to talk to circle makers. It was nearly impossible. They're all very secretive. They uh, are very obsessed with the idea that folks need to have some sort of experience in their circles. They want to see those people have those experiences. But Colin also points out that they could theoretically be prosecuted by farmers in some cases. Mm-hmm. And that might be the real reason they never own up to the circles they've made or record proof of them. From page 103 of his book, quote, one would expect that if anyone was to blast the idea of non-human intelligence being involved with the making of crop circles, it would be a well-known crop artist like Matthew Williams, who we mentioned earlier when we read the letter from Mr. Bishop, who was the chairman of the Center for Crop Circle Studies, who said Mm -hmm. just for talking to Matthew Williams, all these people told him they were going to drop out of of one of their gatherings. Right. One would expect that if anyone was to blast the idea of non-human intelligence being involved with the making of crop circles, it would be a well-known crop artist like Matthew Williams, the only person ever arrested and charged for making crop circles. Mm. Instead, Matthew tells illuminating stories of high strangeness events that happened to circle makers as they constructed their elaborate designs, starting with why they go out in the field at all. In these stories, we find that artists, researchers, and experiencers are all connected through the high strangeness experiences we share. It becomes very clear that something bigger is going on. Mm. Listen to this story from Matthew, this crop circle artist. It's from pages 103 and 4 of The Edge of Reality. Shortly after 11 p.m. on Saturday, July 30th, 1999, Matthew was sitting at home watching television when suddenly he felt a strong urge to go out and make a crop circle. Although this wasn't unusual, he was alone and typically made circles with other people. In his mind was impressed the image of a flower design. He considered the design, determined the construction steps involved, and decided he could make it alone. The now familiar rush of adrenaline set in, and he was psyched to make the pattern he saw in his mind. Gathering his equipment, he set off into the countryside. Matthew drove down the country lanes past several fields before he found one near Avebury that, quote, felt right. Leaving the car in the lay-by, an area for cars to pull off the road, he trekked to the edge of the field with his equipment. Making a circle was a sacred rite for Matthew, and he performed a short ceremony before entering the field. As he walked out into the crop, he was immediately worried as he heard voices and someone playing the guitar in the distance. He wondered if he should continue, then quickly felt safe as it suddenly became very cold and he was surrounded in misty fog. He made the circle and returned home. Over the next few days, he inquired about the people who'd been in the field talking and playing the guitar while he had been making the circle. Matthew found a woman who said she was there with a group of women, although no one was playing the guitar. She said that those present meditated on a flower design, asking that it be created for them. Shortly into their meditation, a bank of fog formed over the field below. The next day, the women were delighted to find that the pattern they had visualized was manifested. Of course, they didn't know at the time that Matthew had made it. Just as he didn't know, they were requesting the design he saw in his head. 
Apparently, this compulsion to make circles is not unique. Doug and Dave experienced it. Matthew Williams does, and so do many others as well. In an interview with On the Edge Media, Matthew describes the role that feeling had in whether his team made or did not make a circle. If the idea felt right, they made it. If it didn't feel right, they held off. They used that criterion to choose fields, plan designs, determine timing, and most everything else related to making circles. It sounded eerily familiar to the way that many researchers found circles in the early days. We felt compelled to follow our sense that a circle was just around the corner. I see no difference in Matthew's story with my own prayer for a Celtic cross. Did human circle makers pick up my request that night that I asked for a Celtic cross? Did Busty Taylor's request, the C. Seti logo, and Graham Pritchard's Flower of Life arrive the same way? It is clear that we are all connected in this phenomenon in ways we do not understand. Whose plan is at work and what forces are involved? With regard to another circle, Colin points out that the Daily Mail interviewed people who were visiting the formation. Most were adamant it could not have been made by human hand. More interesting was the interview of the circle makers. The artists revealed they occasionally saw strange lights in the fields while making circles, and once encountered a bright light that lit up the formation they were making, causing them to lie on the ground for fear of being caught, except the source was not human. And now listen to this story. This is relating to one of the most preeminent crop circle artists in England, Julian Richardson. This comes from page 108 of their book, uh, the Kindle edition of On the Edge of Reality. One of the most meaningful moments for me as I watched the video, which he's watching with uh, Julian in it, was when Julian discussed a formation I had researched extensively. That's Colin's point of view. This crop design was made in the geometry of a pentagon. After it was made, a friend sent me several rolls of film containing a series of aerial photographs of the complex design. Placing the photographs from different angles together, I soon saw that the formation was placed in a field that itself was a perfect pentagon. The field was bounded on all five sides by hedgerows separating it from additional fields beyond. Not only was the pentagon geometry of the formation proportional to the pentagon shape of the field, they were also perfectly aligned side for side. I used this formation extensively in my lectures to demonstrate that an intelligent hand was involved in positioning and constructing the circles. At the time, I did not believe crop circles were made by people. And if Julian Richardson had told me that he had made the Pentagon, I would not have believed him. The formation was purposefully and perfectly aligned. What person could manage such a flawless job? Julian Richardson did, in fact, make the circle. Of greater interest is this. Julian went into a field to make a pentagon formation. It was dark. He didn't have an aerial view, and he had no idea what the shape of the field was. He created the formation in that particular field because it, quote, felt right. He did not purposefully pick the shape to match the field or align the sides, yet there it was. Julian says, quote, I would have been hard pushed to have actually placed it meaning the, the Pentagon, there by design. I was shocked, to say the least, when I saw the aerial images, end quote. So again, I'd encourage anyone even remotely interested in this series we've done to check out On the Edge of Reality by Colin and Cynthia Andrews. There's a lot more to it than what we just shared. We have links to it in our show notes at astonishinglegends.com on the webpage for this episode. That's all we're going to share from it tonight, except for this one observation that Colin makes uh, on page 245 in the book. And no, this is not a final conclusion from him. It's just at the outset of the ones that he eventually comes to by the end. Uh, 
from page 245 again. My conclusion is that we are interacting with many different minds and multiple intelligences that fall into two groups. There is the mind intelligence of interaction with UFOs, orbs, and those who have died. Then there is the orchestrating force that brings the right people to the right place for interactions to occur. It creates synchronicity and guides our contact with each other as our intentions are coordinated. To say that we are intermingling with just one intelligence is akin to proposing that humans are the only life form on earth. What Mm. did you think of those stories? You know what? I like those. I like those. We got to do a little dateline thing there because we're like, all this stuff is (laughs) fake. The science is bad. And then then we got to do that thing. Or is it? (laughs) (laughs) And then Colin found out what really goes on. That's a oh, terrible that's Keith Morrison, uh, but I have seen him in the airport and uh, no, in no. Phoenix. You know who does a yeah. great Keith Morrison is Bill Hader. His yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. Uh, I know he just, yeah. right. Does that uh, ad infinitum? Uh, well, <sighs> this is what's always great. By the way, yeah. this is just before what? you even get into this. Yes. What's always great is that I'm like always super surprised by these really breathtaking stories that defy. Yeah normal reason and reality and you're mm-hmm. always like yeah that's that's kind of what i thought the whole time you don't i never get the reaction out of you i want <laughs> no you you are i certainly not heard of these because i let you uh do your thing and and uh you know i felt compelled not to read the chapters <laughs> on the edge of reality uh because i was looking at other stuff but i figured you would handle this adroitly and deftly which you did sir we were kind of heading towards this overarching idea and even though his ideas in Crop Circle Signs of Contact, which was uh, 2003 when it was published, and years later when uh, On the Edge of Reality was published, the journey that he has taken with his ideas seemed to be heading towards that anyway, and that there's a connection. And even, I mean, this is the thing, we're all in this together. Yeah. I like Nancy Talbot's idea that there are many things going on here, many different forces, energies, phenomena all coming together who knows what it is but in her mind it's also there's some kind of consciousness involved with this rather than just a weird weather phenomenon there is something happening here that you need to experience but we all can't study crop circles as much as these folks or even go to them we can look at the pictures we can think about what's going on here and maybe that's the message just baby steps, something that the David Morse character says to Jodie Foster on the beach in contact is that these are big ideas. So we're going to start off with baby steps and you'll get there one day, but we're not going to lay this all out on you as some theorize in the, in the movie 2001. Remember, uh, he's getting blasted with all these colors and lights yes. at the end and, uh, an idea I heard early on, which, um, uh, I'm not sure about, but basically it was all the information in the universe. Like, yeah, he's getting zapped with and he's overloaded. So to not freak us out, we're getting gentle messages that are beautiful, that I don't believe these are all created by humans. There are some cases like, again, like the, the Julia set across from Stonehenge. I don't see how a group of people could do something that complicated In the amount of time that we had, I've said this in part one, is that, yes, you could get humans to do most all these, even bending some stocks maybe and pointing people to them as proof that it's uh, non-human. But I can't see logically how they're all made by humans. But 
listening to these stories, it's fascinating in that I do believe that there is much more of a connection than most everyone realizes. And maybe that's what Collins tripped onto, is that we're all connected in this form of communication, whether we realize it or not. And the ultimate message is not who's doing this. Is it human? Is it aliens, little gray people? But what is the significance of the interaction, that there's something bigger than all of us that we can see that guides us, that nudges us towards greater understanding? And it may be a while before we can comprehend what that is. But these are the baby steps. Well, you might wonder what's going on with crop circles now in the times of COVID. In 2020, for example, well, they're still happening. It's hard to know how many are out there because less people are going out due to quarantine and all the various rules and counting them and cataloging them. But they are happening. A listener forwarded us a video. I'd like to thank you. It's uh, Renee Andre forwarded us this video, which has Linda Moulton Howe in it, who I know is... uh, one of Chris Cogswell's favorite ladies. But uh, it's a pretty cool video. She has a nice segment in there about circles uh, from 2020 when she's talking to a friend in England. One was really impressive. Forrest and I watched It's only like a five or six minute segment in there. We'll have a link to it at the time. With this one that from the air was a perfect circle and huge, very long, uh, a ring design. But on the ground, the, it was geographically complex. And so what was interesting about that is that in its execution, no matter who or what did it, they managed to pull it off in a way that when you looked at it from above, it was geometrically, it appeared to be geometrically perfect. But if you'd have tried to make it on the ground that way, it would have been wavy on the edges. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty fascinating. So they're still happening, still going on. It makes me think of... Uh... Uh, Michelangelo's David. It's meant to be seen from below and meant to be imposing. So the size of the hand is part of some illusion, optical illusion, in that if you look at it from another, yeah, if you look at it from another angle, it looks (laughs) ginormous. But uh, from the ground, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's finally time for our conclusions. Uh, I know it seems like all time has Mm. stopped since we started part three here. (laughs) I'm going to say for me, this is one of the deepest dives I've ever done on our show. My hat's off to you, sir, uh, for all you put in here, especially part three, because we didn't really talk a whole lot or or communicate with each other. But you felt compelled by an unknown compelling I, force honestly, to, I did to do feel it. compelled. And I still yeah. feel like I'm in the shallow end of the pool, by the way. Right. But like, I have neglected my family the past several days. <laughs> oh. I have sat at my desk yeah. more than I have in ages. Yeah. Today alone, I think I've been here 12, 13, no, maybe 14 hours, honestly. And, mm-hmm. but I couldn't stop doing it. You know, here's what I want to say. There's no question I purchased and read more books for this series than any other one we've ever done. (laughs) I mean, I need half a bookshelf for them, and that's with the two of them being on Kindle only. By the way, we did, of course, as we said, we reached out to Colin Andrews for this series, as well as Team Satan, now known as the Circle Makers, via their website. Both were tricky to get in touch with. Actually, we never heard from the Circle Makers, but we did hear from Mm. Colin, as we indicated earlier. He's taking some time off from interviews right now, and having seen everything he's been through from the research, and also respecting his desire for some digital quiet time, I get it. But he did listen to part one of this series, and he sent us the following email. Quote, I want to congratulate you on one of the most meticulously researched and well-presented programs I have heard and also participated in over the last four decades about the crop circles. 
I mm. also most sincerely want to thank you for the respectful attitude, fair and probing, which is the most anyone can expect. Regrettably, it's not always the case out there. The subject will definitely benefit by this show, and I am very pleased to post it to my Facebook page, which he did. Uh, that's facebook.com slash Colin Andrews author. He then wrote, I look forward to part two. Once again, thank you for the obvious time you put in with your team in researching the subject. Best wishes. That means the world to us. Mm. We're very aware that when we come to a topic as large as this, that we're the Johnny come lately's popping in with a few weeks of cursory research and making our proclamations <laughs> and conclusions. We mm -hmm. take the responsibility of getting the legend right, though, and Colin, we'd like to thank you for the kind words. Now that part three is out, you're welcome to rescind them and file any corrections we need to make. <laughs> Just be warned, yeah. corrections go in a dark corner of our website that no one sees. <laughs> anyway. The comments section. Yeah, yes. the comments section, maybe. I should point out that in the thread on Colin's Facebook page, where he posted the link to part one, he expressly forbids the names of crop circle makers appearing on his page to prevent vitriol and targeting. There's a long stream of comments on that thread, actually, where people clearly state, and this is, I think, news to you, Forrest, that the 409-circle mm -hmm. galaxy spiral was a hoax. Okay. There's no definitive proof in there, but mm -hmm. uh, there are some of the creators' names of it are apparently known. They're not shared in that thread and won't be, but it seemed clear that that formation may have been outed. That's the one that appeared on Milk Hill, as we said, on August right. 12, 2001. Right. It's one of my favorites, and hoaxed or not, it still showed up a month before 9-11. Mm. Coincidental, I'm sure there's no other known connection between the two, but I wonder if someone dreamed up that shape before it was made. If it was indeed a hoax. Again, a lot of the hoaxes don't have any proof to them. So that's the right. Well, I mean, thing. that's, yeah. It's that, just somebody exactly. saying, oh, yeah, we made that one. It's the easiest thing to say. And a lot of people will say, well, there you go. No matter how impossible it seems. Yes. Because that's the more comfortable position and belief to take in that there's no message here. There's no greater uh, power looking over us and judging what we do. We can go on about our crummy little habits being mean to other people, and there's no consequences. We don't like someone looking over us, knowing things that we don't know ourselves or can't figure out. It's unsettling. That's, I believe, why a lot of people don't, uh, you know, they're materialists and, and humanists in a way, and that, no, this is enough for me, and that's all I'm going to think about is just what I'm doing here right now, rather than the bigger picture of what lies beyond us and our petty little day-to-day -day dealings. So the 409-circle Triskelion, if you're saying that that's man-made, it's like, well, I'm equally impressed. I, I just want to see some proof of it. Yeah. I'll agree. Maybe 80% of these circles are made by people. And it's always that 20%. It's, you know, what they say about cattle mutilations. Yeah, it was it Greg Valdez, I think. Uh, this uh, He's a law enforcement. I think his father was. You know, I heard in, in an interview with, I believe, Jim Harold, and uh, of course he's interviewed everybody, but it's like 3% are just so bizarre and weird, there's no explanation that they can come up with. That is enough. 3% yeah. is the white crow that proves not all crows are black. Yes, and folks, uh, the person, the Jim that Forrest is referring to there, he did say his full name once, but that is Jim yeah. Harold, the OG podfather of Paranormal <laughs> Podcasting sure. and uh, a good friend of ours. If you're looking for shows to listen to, he has about 50 billion shows out. Uh, one of our favorites is Jim Harold's Campfire, but there's many other ones. He's even interviewed everybody up. at this point, having started since 2005. So. Yeah, that's a while back. Um, so yeah. coming back around to one of the questions that we did ask Colin, we did ask him, is there any evidence now of crop circles appearing in daylight in areas where no known hoaxers were observed. 
And Colin said, and this was just a few weeks ago, there are a number of claims by eyewitnesses, but not hard evidence of a daylight appearance. It's always like, well, you know, we didn't see it there before or whatever, mm-hmm. but there's there's not been hard evidence of that. There's no video of that actually happening. Mm-hmm. Aside from the Oliver's Castle one we talked about, which was a definite hoax, there is no hard proof of that, which to me, harkens back to Skinwalker Ranch. More on that in a second, where it's just not, it's not going to let you catch it. It's not going to let you catch it. (laughs) Anyway, I've had a lot of thoughts Mm -hmm. along the way, just from part one to where we are now. I've been on an evolutionary journey myself Mm -hmm. on this story. Back when we looked at some of the ancient references to crop circles, like the Guion Guion drawings in Australia, or other references much later in the 15 and 1600s, well, they're truly, those are speculation. Mm -hmm. Stories from those periods are rarely told in a clear way and are often coming through the filter of the time, so it can be hard to know what really happened. Moving forward, however, to the more recent generational farmer's tales, well, I thought all of the old ones were more than likely either some sort of natural occurrence or real, meaning real and unexplainable in some other Mm -hmm. way. And we have to quantify uh, what Forrest just said a few minutes ago, what real means, not physically created by human beings, which in turn means created by an unknown higher intelligence. Now, this was the course of my thinking. When we looked back at the first one to appear in a photograph in 1932 at Bow Hill or Dean Jeffries' work with satellite images, I thought those aren't hoaxes. And indeed, as far as I know, no one claimed to be hoaxing circles that far back. At least we couldn't find any evidence of that anywhere. Now, I did ask Colin Andrews a question about where he was at now with thinking about some of the older ones that might have been hoaxes. Here's the question. In hindsight, can you attribute some of the complex swirling and multi-layered floors of the circles to hoaxers? And if so, how do you think they were able to create different patterns in the layers? Colin replied, the one that stands out from the rest was the 1986 simple circle at Hedburn Worthy. So I I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Something about the way that that was the pattern on the floor still today to someone Mm -hmm. who thinks the bulk of them are possibly human made for whatever Hmm. reason. That one still stood out for him, this 1986 one, which it was just a circle. A proper skeptic would say that those must be misunderstood. So when we come to Colin Andrews, Pat Delgado, and Busty Taylor, Colin is a hot potato in the crop circle world. (laughs) In the course of his career, which we have much respect for, he's been lauded, pilloried, and pushed aside. But you know what? He kept an open mind. He remained self-observant and recognized that maybe his own ideas about what was going on were not broad enough to appreciate the big picture. A big picture that still has an element of something unknown to it. But before I get further into that, though, I want to touch on some of the things that stood out to me throughout the course of the cursory research we did on this topic. One, it's more complex than anyone thought. Two, there are numerous circles that appear under conditions that, if true, make human involvement an impossibility, including but not limited to on guarded military land, in brief amounts of time in broad daylight, although no hard evidence of that, that's it's anecdotal or, or, or mm-hmm. witness testimony, near busy highways, on rainy, muddy nights with no mud or soil compression in the ensuing circle, the list goes on. Yeah, the Triskelion, I believe, if you watch the documentary, you know, he was saying the Milk Hill one. That night, it rained all night and was storming, and it's at the top of a hill, and the wind blows really hard. They get some really fierce weather up there. So whoever did it would have to have put up with that in the middle of the night in a rainstorm. Or the weather cleared up over the field the circle was being made in during the time Um, they were there, because there are instances from the hoaxers of that happening. Weather. Okay cooperating with them. There's another thing. 
Even Colin Andrews will and did tell us that he feels that greater than 80% now are likely to be what people refer to as hoaxes. In fact, here's one of the questions we sent him back when we were still working on part one. In a BBC News article from August 9th of 2000, you're quoted as saying that after 17 years of work, you believe that 80% of crop circle formations are man-made and that shifts in the Earth's magnetism may account for the remaining 20%. Is that still your position? Colin wrote back, no. As the complex formations made by artists along with their helpers has increased, aerial and ground reports of the more simple geometries have reduced. It is possible that the agenda of the intelligence behind some crop circles has pulled away or that reduced public interest and less aerial surveillance has culminated in a higher than 80% figure. So I Mm. thought that was interesting. Again, playing into the interactive idea of all this. Mm -hmm. We have also detailed the intermingling of thought that appears to be going on here between hoaxers and crop circle believers. It was our Skinwalker Ranch series back in September 2016 that first exposed me to this idea of a paranormal phenomenon that seems to be not only highly interactive, but fiendishly prankish. Now, Mm -hmm. Skinwalker Ranch was a scenario where a team of scientists and researchers spent months studying strange events, and it was as though every time they had a thought or idea about a new way to test a hypothesis, whatever was happening was one step ahead of them. I thought that was the height of control being exhibited over us mere mortals by an unseen power of the bizarre. That's what I thought anyway, until we got to crop circles. This is next level. Here not only does the phenomenon seem to know what you're looking for, it may have actually manipulated hoaxers and incorporated them into the process. This is the game set and match of paranormal trickster behavior. If there are intelligent entities behind what's going on here, and they're all hanging out at some barbecue in the fourth dimension, if you believe any of this at all, (laughs) whatever group of them that's pulling this off is holding court about how to mess with us meat socks down here on Earth. (laughs) Something very odd is happening here indeed. Somehow folks are conceiving of patterns and formations that they want to see, and then in many cases the so-called hoaxers whom they've never met, have felt a strange, overwhelming compulsion to create those very patterns, usually within days of the conceiver dreaming them up. There have even been instances of hoaxing teams developing a pattern only to find another group of, and let's be respectful here, crop circle artists, have created the exact same pattern before the initial team could do it themselves. There have been documented cases of malfunctioning electronic equipment in the vicinity of many circles, from cell phones to broadcast television gear, which is designed to work in a wide variety of conditions. People have experienced nausea, healing benefits, euphoria, malaise, and everything in between when visiting them. Is that all psychosomatic? Possibly. What about the military involvement? There's a pattern of events that would suggest that the military is definitely trying to make a mockery of the whole phenomenon, but why? It begs the question, are they trying to cover it up because they know what's going on, or are they trying to cover it up because they don't? And then there's the scientific observations. W.C. Levengood's double-blind slip-up aside, most of his research should hold up. Even Colin mostly agrees when we asked him this question about it. Given the situation that began with your double-blind test for Mr. Levengood and culminated and Nancy Talbot's appearance on Coast to Coast, we were wondering if you felt that his reported results on that fabricated circle nullified all of his prior work. I know we read this before, but I wanted to repeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Colin replies, no, I don't think it takes away from all of his work, but it raises considerable questions. Mm -hmm. Now, we know Colin's point of view has been polarizing, but we stand firmly with Dan Aykroyd in the acknowledgement (laughs) that the place he's come around to feels like it's on the right track, regardless of how many folks got alienated from his point of view along the way. That said, 
There's room for all kinds of ideas here. And we have to remember that Colin Andrews' approach has up until now had more to do with how they're made than why. In fact, we asked him this question early on, again, back when we were working on part one and before we had gotten into the weeds on this. We asked Colin, do you think crop circles are all man-made now? His response to us was, determining man-made has not been the most important question for at least 21 years. It's why that encompasses the originating thought by humans and others. The interactive events are far more revealing than who made them. So we know that you folks will expect us to talk about the how, and I think we've already covered that pretty well. No, I don't think it was hedgehogs, whirlwinds, or 100% hoaxes either. (laughs) Yes, I think it's possible that some of the earliest ones were some natural phenomenon we don't understand, but I also think... Once the idea of hoaxing them became public with Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, that was like a siren call, well, to a type of graffiti artist, really, but also different. Graffiti's been around for over 10,000 years, since well before written language. Folks feel compelled to make their mark, and talented folks can do so much when it comes to something like a crop circle, especially in today's day and age with the help of computers for modeling or perhaps even an advanced understanding of math. And these crop circle artists appear to take great pride in watching folks have visceral reactions to their work. Isn't that what every artist wants? At this point, there have been so many circles, over 15 to 20,000 now, I believe, by one count, it's hard to know how many were real, in air quotes, and how many were hoaxes or made by crop circle artists. Again, another question for Colin. How would one today determine if a circle was a hoax? Colin's response? Damage. Soil compression. Signs of soil or plant interference at key construction points, such as the center. Irregular geometry. But let's come back to that mysterious cross-pollination and influence that seems to be shared between folks meditating or wishing something specific would appear and then a hoaxer producing it. There are several cases now that we've heard of a mysterious fog moving in and concealing the makers from nearby observers who are often the ones meditating on a particular pattern. At the risk of oversimplifying the phenomenon, it stands to reason that whatever is controlling this fog and sometimes other variants of weather over circles being made, well, that's what's at play here. I'm reminded of when we had author Linda Godfrey on the show about her book, Monsters Among Us, and Forrest, you can correct me if I get some of these Mm -hmm. details wrong. This was episode 49 back in October of 2016, which dealt mostly with werewolves, but there was a story in her book where a farmer set out a dead deer for bait to see what strange things were happening on his land, and they set up a game camera to see if they could identify anything. One morning, they came back, and the deer carcass was gone or moved from the, I think it was a fence. I can't remember exactly, but they checked the game camera, and a strange green mist or fog had come in, obscured the fence and the carcass where the deer was, and when it cleared, the deer was gone. Yeah. There's a white mist. There's a green mist reported. There's always a mist. Yeah, there was another mist in Mothman, I think, when we were talking about the, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I mean, obviously fog happens. That's a natural weather phenomenon, but there's there's something more going on here, it feels like. And there's numerous other tales of this kind of fog coming in, obscuring supernatural and paranormal events. And I was struck by that detail when not one, but two different crop circle artists stated that a fog obscured their work, and in at least one case, it was only visible to the people watching the field, but not the circle makers themselves. Mm -hmm. They thought they were operating in plain view of the observers, but they were so compelled to create the pattern, they did it anyway. As Mm. far as they were concerned, there was no reason they shouldn't have been busted, but they couldn't bring themselves to leave either. They had a faith 
that it would work. And thanks to that fog, it did. So remember the Stonehenge Julia set that appeared in broad daylight in 45 mm -hmm. minutes? Here's a theory I just came up with tonight for us. Yeah. What if a daylight equivalent of this mysterious fog obscured a team of circle makers that day? What if they felt compelled to go out there off the busy freeway in broad daylight and make that mm -hmm. set, but thanks to something similar to the fog, but not fog, it made it impossible for anyone to see them. Mm. And to them, they were doing it in plain sight, but they just didn't get caught. What if the makers wandered into another dimension of time or space to create the Julia set and those left behind us can't see mm -hmm. them while they're there. And then they return to our time and space once their work is finished. But for us, the circle just magically appears. Mm -hmm. How about that? It's I like, like it. I, it reminds me of uh, when uh, <laughs> in Young Guns, after they yeah. uh, had the psychedelic mushrooms and they go into the <laughs> village and he says, how come they ain't killing us? And he goes, we're yeah. in the spirit world. They can't see us. Right. I don't know. I'm just asking, is yeah. it, did they yeah. get invisible? I know this is crazy. If you believe any of this at all, this is just where I'm well, going after reading about yeah. all this. Just a quick thought. Um, again, it goes back to my thing. There could be a multitude of ways to skin this crop circle deal in that hoaxers are being obscured. That's how they're allowed to make it. They're feeling compelled to make it under certain conditions and they're being helped. On the other hand, it may be that some force, like we said before, these balls of light that show up before, after, during, just around the circles, maybe that has something to do with it. And there's another way to make these crop circles, because as Colin said, there are signs that you can look to for obvious hoaxing. And then there's ones that still baffle people. That's right. The bending, I just don't get that part where you can see a curved, gentle bend, not a break. How are people doing that? Because to our knowledge here, there is no really specialized equipment. Maybe you have some lasers to lay stuff out with, a chalk line, the usual tools of the trade, but you still have to roll them flat in a way that does it quickly. You can't go around bending, steam bending every stock to get it to lay flat. And then as we've seen, there is the interweaving and interleaving of the stocks, especially where they meet, and also the precise geometry of it. There's some things, again, for me still, that just uh, go beyond logical comprehension. But I do think that there is a lot of factors going on. You can't point to just one and say, well, there you go. That's the cause of all of them. It's not lost on me that all this talk about high strangeness happening to the hoaxers is anecdotal, really. Mm -hmm. They don't have <laughs> right. any more proof of what they're experiencing than the other side has of circles being created right before their eyes. So this could be another cruel joke on the part of whatever might be behind all of this. Or is it, God forbid, a case of the hoaxers trying to perpetuate the mythos by making up these accounts and leaning into the odd events that surround crop circles because goal number one for them is to keep the magic alive. I suppose so. Brilliant move, if so, and all too human. But even if they're tales of glowing orbs of light, yes, they claim to have seen those two, while mm. making a formation are made up, we're still left with the people who imagined a pattern and then discovered it shortly after, hoaxed or not, created by something or someone they had no prior contact with. That's a fact. That's mm -hmm. happening. And it's been documented numerous times. Yeah. So now that I've gone on too long, here's what I come <laughs> back to. Uh -huh. I'm with Colin on this. If you're asking whether any given crop circle is real, you're asking the wrong question at this point. The question is, why is it there? And did the people involved experience strange compulsions to create it? 
Does it match a pattern someone already had in mind? The next question to ask is, is this extraterrestrial at all? Or is it just some component of our own reality that we don't yet understand, something we've stumbled onto haphazardly? A strange new mental technology that we don't yet know how to use. All I know is that this is definitely not mystery solved for me. In fact, as is so often true with the paranormal, I have many more questions now than answers. And as far as I'm concerned, the story of crop circles is really only just beginning. going to wrap up our series on crop circles. A very special thanks to Colin Andrews and our friend Gletters for connecting us with him. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Kaylin Bell. Hi, I'm J-I-M. And I'm pretty sure you know how to spell Scott. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. You guys have even inspired me to start my own podcast about a local cryptid called Scatman. So, anyways... Thanks a lot. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.